All right, welcome to Battery Metals One-on-One, everyone. Glad to be here. I'm your host, Scott, along with Tom. Hey, how's it going, guys? Listen, uh, we just did an epic run through uranium. Now we're talking mining. We're talking the ads. We got the swag. Hold on. Boom. This was this is what came through in the morning. We can get a close on that. Uh, listen, guys, retweet this. Uh, everyone who retweets, you get a chance to win the swag. Let me put it back up here. We got we got two different uranium lids. You got the if you if you're if you're digging stuff out of the ground, you're doing one of these things. Uranium. It's it's uh, base metals, guys. This is uh, we got an incredible incredible schedule pack. We're gonna run through it. We got Trace uh, who's ready to on deck. But Scott, first, a word from our wonderful partners. Yeah, we got we got to shout out our partners a little bit. So first, we have Hill Tower Resource Advisors. They're a boutique natural resource investment firm. Great uh, if you need help in in anything commodities. Next, we have Canada Nickel Company. They're turning Timmins, Ontario into the next great global nickel district. So keep an eye on them. And then last but not least, we have Sprott Asset Management. They're always on top of commodities. They're the leading global asset manager in precious and energy transition metals. Check out their list of funds. There we go. Guys, uh, very excited. We've got a great lineup here for you. Let's kick into it. Who's, who's coming up next? Oh, Tracy. As you guys know, Tracy from Twitter. The, the leading commodity voice on Twitter. Tracy. <laughs> Tracy, how are you? Oh, good. Well, you know, we, we had all the technical magic happen and it, we, we got it. We got it happening. Yeah, oh, guys. Well, if, you happened. know what, Trace? Trace, thank you so much for joining us. For those outside of the world of Twitter, because the, the world of Twitter knows you, Trace. You're, you, you know, you've, you're, you're a staple. Um, if you don't know, Trace has been uh, ushering commodities, the whole spectrum, uh, some of the best Twitter spaces. We're gonna talk about that at the end, you, you, where where people can drop and and uh, you know fi- find you. Um, but uh, first, Trace, you know, you've been early on highlighting the constructive backdrop for silver, particularly as it relates to the strong demand from renewable energy. Could you uh, first off give our audience an understanding of the demand drivers for silver? Well, I think you have to look at the main, their main demand drivers. And we'll go through from kind of least to the biggest. And the least is photography, which is at about 2% right now. We've got silverware, which is about 6%. Believe it or not, people still buy silver, silverware. Um, you have, then you have jewelry, which is about 19%. And then physical investment, which is 27%. But the biggie, what people don't really understand is the industrial applications. And this includes solar panels, batteries, automotive, even healthcare. And that's the biggest driver. And this is why I think the silver market is so interesting when you try and compare it to, say, uh, the gold market, whereas it's not only an investment vehicle, but it has even more industrial applications than just being a physical investment. And that really is it. That's the most interesting thing. Uh, like, so when, um, you know, the, the classic, you know, gold silver ratio and, uh, you know, th- this is, you know, we're, we're out of whack right now. Um, the, what one interesting driver is this exactly, you don't have this in gold. Right. And I just wonder whether, you know, when you look out further, when you, you know, when you think about going forward, 
is this going to like like could we see a material outperformance of silver and i'm not talking like a one year but i'm talking more medium term view where you say listen you know there's enough here to to really you know stoke silver in a meaningful way greater than gold I think percentage wise, that's absolutely possible. I, you know, we're not going to see $2,000 silver at any time, but you know, if you're talking about percentage increase, I think it's very possible, right? Because you're, when we're looking at uh, industrial applications, not only is the healthcare industry growing, which is what m most people normally think of when they look at silver for, for industrial capabilities, but we have, um, this green transition and that includes solar panel technology battery technology and uh and evs slash hybrids which we i'm sure we'll get into in a little bit but um and those applications are really going to be the main driver of uh, you know of silver yeah, the thing that really stuck with me is if you look back at some of the forecasts on silver demand from uh, electric vehicles and, and solar panels in particular, they ended up being way off. And they were even from industry publications, you would think they'd be bullish, but it ended up coming in much higher. So that speaks to, you know, we're already the forecasts we see look pretty bullish on silver, but they could end up being not bullish enough. And so there could be, you know, some type of squeeze from solar panels, and electric vehicles down the road. It, it seems possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look at 2023 alone, um, we're looking at uh, 474 million ounce stock decline. <laughs> In the meantime, we have silver mine production falling 18 million ounces. Uh, in a year over year in 2023 most of that is coming from canada united states russia obviously we have you know there are problems with sanctions with russia and so i would argue that that is going to be a lot larger of a percentage at the end of the day um and and there's not really in sweden we've got a decline as well so we don't there's not a lot of real increases in production right now aside from bolivia and the other problem with mining right now, what you have to understand is we have all these interest rate rises, right? And all these mining companies really rely on a lot of financing to get their projects off the ground, right? And so when it's harder to, or it's more expensive to borrow money, that makes these projects more expensive and phases out projects ultimately if they can't you know, afford this kind of outlay when you're talking about interest rate rises and things like that so we're also in an environment where you know interest rates are also causing a problem and this is not unique to the mining industry yeah. in particular this is unique across all the, uh, the entire commodity sector absolutely and and now one thing like it's it's you know this this you know this we've outstripped demand regularly and maybe maybe one aspect i was going to ask you is it's just like do we have the mind supply right now to like like how does you, you, we have a supply demand maybe, maybe i i can pop that up there if you but just you tweeted this earlier but just you know the the interesting part so yeah we have the supply but maybe if we show the supply demand by the it's the third uh, slide uh yeah trace i'm gonna just bring that up you know the the table the table i i i don't like to bring up tables but but this is helpful just maybe you could talk through just some of the dynamics around 
just silver supply. Obviously, you know, uh, uh, solar has been a huge demand driver, but maybe we can talk a bit, a bit, a bit on the supply side. Uh, are we able to meet this incremental bigger demand? Well, no, and that's why we're already seeing a deficit showing up in 2023 that we haven't seen. In fact, we, all of the increases, we've been in a surplus for the last 11 years, basically. <laughs> and literally the uh, deficit that we are creating this year is larger than the sum of those 11 years of surpluses, right? Wow. And this is only expected to grow because of, again, because of the green transition and because of, you know, solar panel technology, um, yeah. you know, which is accelerating demand, EV batteries, uh, electric vehicles in general, et cetera. And so um, that supply deficit is only forecast to grow because mining supply is just not going to catch up. And I think as, you know, and a lot of these figures that people were talking about came in before central banks started raising rates like crazy, mm -hmm. right? And so I think a lot of these estimates that we're seeing are based on kind of old data. And I think that it's going to be even more difficult for miners to get financing for these big projects. So if you're looking at mining companies you want to invest in, you know, you want to kind of look at companies that already have projects in the works, projects yeah. that got financing at, at a much lower rate, et cetera. Well, Trace, you bring up a great point, right? Like, you know, we're 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 deep. You know, we're we're we understand the value of and and the growth that's needed in mining, but the capital is just lacking right now. And and to your point, right? If, if there are a select few companies now that actually have backing uh, to go through with their projects, it almost makes it almost makes it easier in a in a in a weird kind of way, right? In in a bull market, there's so many opportunities, right? But if when you're like you know using uh, uh, Cuppy's great uh, you know inflection investing, the nice thing about inflection investing, you know, where something's kind of beaten out, right? Where there's not a lot of money coming in, is the fact that there's only so few companies that actually have access to capital, and that's that I actually think is incredible. Hundred percent. It does narrow down your choices a lot, and so it, that makes you know it kind of easier to make your decisions in this kind of higher rate environment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, silver also plays. I'm going to uh, uh, pull up a, a visual. It also plays a key role in the automotive industry. Could you talk to this as a demand driver? So, so obviously, it's big in in um, in solar, but this is this is kind of you know it's, it's everywhere. I think automotive is the hugest, most underestimated, I think, uh, demand driver for this commodity that is completely uh, underlooked right now, particularly, you know, when we're talking about, forget ICE vehicles, which already have a lot of electrical components, right? And every electrical component uses silver for soldering. So these electrical components get infinitely higher obviously when you're talking about evs and and particularly with uh hybrids and what we're seeing is you know particularly i find really interesting is we're seeing hybrid demand kind of in north america in particular outstrip actual ev demand and i think you know there's a lot of reasons for that one we're so big canada is so big us is so big we do a lot of driving and the infrastructure for 
uh, for charging just really isn't there right now. And so I think that market's going to take off a lot. And then if you want to also talk about uh, autonomous driving technology requires even more silver demand because it requires more electrical components. And so I think this market is, you know, if you just look at how many electrical components are in an automobile right now, yeah. it's huge. It's huge. Like, it, isn't this the thing we talk about? The world is electrifying and you need silver in an electrified world. So it's, it's, it's EVs are huge, but it's a lot of different things. Ab too. Absolutely. Um, and Trace, just, just wrapping up and it, you know, we, we talked about, so if you had to pick one commodity that, that you, you're bullish going into 2024, what, which one is it? Well, you know, I'm a lover of silver, you know, I gotta say, I've gotta say silver, you know, I think, uh, uh, there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of commodities right now, but I, you know, uh, if we're looking at the metals right now, you know, silver is silver is my go-to. I love it. I love it. And and, uh, and it feels like you know gold, you know gold over two K. You know we're, we're we're getting there. We're getting to that point where where it, you know the market's gonna you know start to bring the, these names back up. So for those trace. Just let people know where they can find you. Uh, with, you you host a lot of great Twitter spaces. Maybe just a quick rundown of, of you know what, what you're hosting, where where they can find you. So I'm on Twitter, obviously at Shy Girl C H I G R L. Uh, I also am at Hilltower Resource Advisors com, which is our research company. Um, I host uh, Twitter Spaces every Wednesday, which I will see you on Thomas on January 10th. So looking forward to that. Um, and that's really where you can find me. I'm not on any other social media aside from X. Fantastic, Trace. And we'll have, a link, we'll have links to, to, to your Twitter and everything. And so when you, if you're watching the YouTube, we'll have links there. Trace, always a pleasure. Uh, family, Grizzle family, Hill Tower, Trace, uh, thank you very much. We'll see you again at the next Commodity Con. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right, guys, don't go anywhere because we have the king, the don of nickel coming up next. Literally, if you if you want to know about the nickel market, there's no one more knowledgeable than Mark Selby of Canada Nickel. He'll be coming up shortly. Don't go anywhere. I like to call him the professor of nickel. I think, you know what I mean? The distinguished, the duke of nickel. Yeah, we don't want to talk about Don because that brings up cartels. No, no, and, no. And no we don't no, want to talk no, about no. no, yeah. But uh, stay tuned. We'll be back with, uh, with Mark in, in a sec. Mark Selby, Mark. the professor of nickel, Captain Canada of nickel, as they say in some in some jurisdictions, especially this one. Mark, how are you? Great, guys. Thanks for the uh, overly generous uh, introduction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's it's, it's called Canada nickel for a reason, Mark. We we, we got to fly the flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got a nickel project in Canada. Go figure. So. <laughs> I like it. The, the name says it all. That's the point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so Scott, kick it off. Yeah. So Mark, you're known in the industry as one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to the fundamentals of nickel. Could you just give us a quick outlook on nickel supply and demand? I think that'd be helpful. Yeah. So start of the year, I said that we were going to see a sell-off uh, at some point during the year, closer to mid-year. I was wrong by about three or four months. Uh, we are now in that sell-off and we've seen nickel prices 
you know, go from above $20,000 a ton plus drop down to almost $15,000 a ton uh, earlier this week. Um, we are going to see some news out of Indonesia this week around new pricing schemes, which, you know, I think is going to reset the cost floor um, for a lot of nickel producers. Um, and, you know, what I've been calling for is, is once we get through this sell-off, um, you know, which we've been expecting, once you get to the start of the new year, you've got continued strong, you'll see a resumption of strong demand growth from the stainless steel market. And right now, we're because lithium prices are collapsing, that's pulled all of the battery materials down. Um, and so we should be through the end of that by the end of this year. And again, you'll see a massive resurge in, in EV demand because contrary to a bunch of reports about EV slowing, blah, 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 you know, certain car makers are having issues. But, you know, year to date, you know, nickel demands up year to date EV sales are up 39 percent. And then longer term, you know, we think 2024 kicks off, um, you know, what we think uh, is, is going to be on our way to five million tons uh, of nickel consumption. What we've seen already in the first three years of this decade is, is demand growth of close to 9%. At that rate, you're looking at close to 6 million tons of nickel by 2030. So, you know, yes, Indonesia is going to add a couple million more tons of supply. Uh, but other than Crawford and a, and a couple of other projects, there's very few new sources of supply that can come online by 20. That underpins the investment thesis and why I choose to have most of my you know, investable net worth and spend most of my time uh, in the nickel space. That's, that's a really helpful uh, high level view. Now you're, you're in the process of building the second largest nickel project in the world, uh, Crawford. So why Canada and why is this the right time to, to embark on an ambitious project like that? Yeah, so we're really fortunate about, you know, not only being in Canada, but it, where we are just outside Timmins in Ontario. It's a it's a hundred year old gold mining camp, you know, that's very familiar with mining. Um, it, it's a, where we located. You have all the major infrastructure that you need to build a mon big mine, road, rail, power. Um, and, you know, one thing people forget is, you know, if you have to fly in, fly out labor all the time, it gets pretty expensive. And so, you know, we're lucky that we've got 60,000 people who live within an hour's drive of the mine site. So, you know, you know what you showed there is we're the second largest nickel reserve uh, in the world. You know, and what's even more exciting that we've been able to put together over the last, you know, three years as we've got Crawford, you know, all the way to feasibility study is, you know, we've, we've got a whole district of, of 20 plus properties, you know, that we think, you know, we're on track to unlocking what could become the world's largest nickel sulfide district. Great. Now, I wanted to get your opinion. So nickel continues to be sent overseas for processing kind of from west to east. Now, do you see the nickel supply chain emerging in Canada? Curious what you're seeing there. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, you've seen governments, right? So Ontario is, 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 you know, one of the few places in the world where you both mine minerals and make cars. Um, and the government's done a good job of funding, you know, EV, e, e, you know, car makers to, to make EVs, battery plants to set up shop, cathode plants to set up shop, precursor plants to set up shop. And so, you know, now projects like Crawford, you know, we're only a year and a half away, you know, from, from having our permits and, and being able to put a shovel in the ground, you know, we expect to see some pretty strong levels of financial, direct financial support from both the province uh, and the country and, and, and the federal government, um, you know, to be able to pull the project forward. And, and you will see the mine and processing capacity, you know, develop in country. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. is all about getting China out of the supply chain. And, and building that processing capacity, building that mining capacity in North America is exactly what the U.S. and a lot of other countries want to see. 
Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, your feasibility study. You just um, brought that out on Crawford that pegged the after-tax value at over $2.6 U.S. And for anyone yeah. who doesn't know Canada Nickel, the, the market cap's at $105 million, so uh, a big discount there. So is yeah. the main driver of that large value the size of the resource you have in Timmins, Ontario? Yeah, so yeah, fundamentally, you know, again, with the, you know, second largest nickel reserve in the world, you can build a very large project. But again, we're in a place where you've got all the power infrastructure and so forth. So you can build a very large project. We start at 60,000 tons of ore a day and we double up to 120,000 tons of ore a day. You know, not only will we be the third largest nickel sulfide operation, uh, we'll produce almost a thousand tons a year of cobalt, uh, a bunch of palladium and platinum. And then we produce a second product that contains, you know, a million and a half tons of iron, 75,000 tons of chrome and has, you know, a little bit of our nickel ends up in, in that product as well. Um, chromium is something that doesn't get talked about very often, but, um, you know, it's a critical mineral in both Canada and the United States. Uh, right now, there is no domestic supply of that mineral. So, you know, having supply from Timmins, you know, is, is a big plus. And we'll, we would supply about 15% of North American demand. The other big driver and sort of going back to your prior question around around processing capacity and supply chain, the other big benefit of the type of nickel project we have is we we've come up with a process to store a million and a half tons of CO2 per year in our tailings. So we've got that capacity in place. So if you want to do the next stage of transformation, we can take any of the CO2 that gets generated in that process and store it in our tailings and, and convert that operation you know, into a, a, net, a net zero operation. And our overall footprint, when you account for that carbon storage, is a net negative 30 tons of CO2 per year. Whereas in Indonesia, a lot of that nickel gets produced with 50 to 90 tons of CO2 per year. That that dynamic is is unique because of of Timmins. Like this is and in, in the technology, right? Like this is something unique to Canada nickel with respect to that net zero. Yeah. So we develop. So a bunch of other, you know, there's a half a dozen projects globally or, or more that have this type of host rock. Other people okay. have looked at capturing, measuring the, the, the carbon that gets picked up passively from the air. Um, but what we figured out is a way to, you know, as it's going through the process plant, we inject CO2 as it's going through there, you know, and can store, you know, uh, you know, for example, BHP counts about 35,000 tons of carbon credits a year from their Mount Keith operation, which is the grandparent of these deposits. Um, you know, as I said, you know, we've got the capacity to store, you know, and an engineered feasibility study level designed to, to you know, to store a one and a half million tons of CO2 per year. So you know, a whole couple of orders of magnitude larger. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Now, I, I wanted to talk about the upfront capital costs because, you know, it's important. You, you, you know, the, the best project needs to get funded uh, to get there. So your upfront capital costs are pegged at $1.7 to bring Crawford online. You said before publicly that you're very confident you can raise both the debt and equity. You've, you've gone through the pieces, but I think it'd be great for everyone to hear. Can you take us through the amount and where you expect the money for the equity component specifically to come from? What, what's your latest thinking on that? Yeah, so if you're looking at roughly at 2 billion US to, to fund the project, 40% equity, 60% debt. You know, the, the, the thing for, you know, any, any investors listening to this, we're right now at a, in a once in a generational opportunity to build mining and processing capacity. The, the governments at, at various levels are going to you know provide you know effectively free money for companies to build these projects so you know if you look at that 800 million dollar equity check 
Uh, you know, we expect at least four to five hundred million dollars of that to come from government sources. And, and, and what you know, what what are those? There's a refundable critical minerals tax credit um, that the government, you know, we spend the money, we get the cash back the next year of 30 cents on every dollar that we every eligible dollar that we spend because of our carbon storage process. We're also eligible for the carbon capture and storage tax credit. We think that gets us 50 cents on every dollar that we spend in, in, on the mill. Then you've got the critical minerals infrastructure fund, which was just basically set up to start spending money, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, there's the Canada Growth Fund, and, there, and there's a whole bunch of other funding arms that are out there to provide, you know, not only grant money, but but you know, capital in a, in a whole range of forms. So, you know, every investor's dream is, you know, if I put in one, somebody comes in along and puts three, four, or five dollars, and and you know, I I get to I get to get all the upside from that. But this is exactly the setup that we've got right now. So we've got the federal government with these programs. We've got the provincial government that is going to give off, you know, one-off money to specific projects. Then you've got the U.S. Department of Defense um, as an ally of the United States in the critical minerals race. You know, uh, we are eligible uh, for funding from from that branch of government. And then you've got groups like in in Europe now. You have Innovia. Uh, it's a two billion euro, uh, you know, equity fund uh, that's there to provide capital to, again, critical minerals projects, as long as there's some sort of European tie. So if we sign a deal with a, a European automaker, you know, that qualifies. So you have four to 500 million from the governments. Then you look at, again, you've got the car companies, all of the battery supply chain, you know, who really want local, you know, zero carbon, you know, environment, ESG compliant uh, supply, um, which is tough to get out of Indonesia. You know, they want that, you know, in Canada. And so, Again, we're in a once in a generation window here where, you know, the, the, the downstream users are quite willing to sign up and write checks. We saw GM write a big check for uh, Lithium America's uh, Thacker Pass operation, you know, and we're having those kinds of conversations now, you know, with with the various car companies uh, and, and battery supply chain. You know, so that's another big chunk of capital on, on top of that. And then the third piece is, you know, the Japanese trading houses who historically, you know, would buy 10 to 20 percent of a project at close to the project nav are again back in the game um, after being away from the market for the last decade. So it's quite possible to set up an equity stack where you don't have to come back to the market, um, you know, for, for any additional equity. You can you can get wow, it from good safety. Yeah. So, you know, and, and on the debt side, again, there's a bunch of government agencies, you know, who've been mandated to deploy as much capital as possible into the critical mineral space. So it, the, the market doesn't reflect it today, but it, it really is, you know, this, this is a generational opportunity. It's incredible. Yeah. It's a great rundown. That's why I wanted to hear that. It's, it's uh, very exciting. Now I, I wanted to ask about the potential of your land package to host more Crawford size deposits. Cause this isn't, this wouldn't be the end of the road, just Crawford, correct? No, no, we, we we don't even think Crawford's the best project that we have based on some of the, you know, the early oh, drilling right. we've got on some of the other projects. You know, uh, the, the good thing with this type of deposit is there's a certain type of geophysics, you know, that really does give you sort of 70 to 80 percent of the answer in terms of the scale of, of the resource that's there. And so, yeah, you know, with the slide that you have up there, you know, that, that, that the property on the top. Um, anything in pink is, is you know, we think going to end up being the right kind of mineralization. We drilled 16 holes into that property at the top, all based just on provincial geophysics. Um, you know, we, we, we have 20 properties. Uh, 11 of them are larger than Crawford. 
um, you know, and they're, you know, basically, you know, t- nearly 20 times the scale of what we have at Crawford, which is already, you know, the second largest nickel reserve in the world. So, you know, we've drilled uh, about nine of them and we're nine for nine in terms of finding the right kind of mineralization. And so, um, you know, we really do think we're, you know, in the early days of unlocking, you know, a, a nickel sulfide district that, you know, could become the largest nickel sulfide district globally. Yeah, so it's about a district, not just a project. Yeah, 100%. And and again, all these deposits are all in and around Timmins with access to infrastructure and all those advantages I, I, I you know, you know, uh, lined up earlier, you know, every, every one of these properties has got, you know, similar advantage. Mark, uh, phenomenal overview of a, of a, of a great project, great district. Uh, guys, if you guys want to hear, uh, understand more of the project, we'll have the links, everything on YouTube. Mark, thank you so much for joining us as always. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. It's great to see you guys. Thank you. Thank you. I have a good one. All right, everyone. Battery metals. That we we're just getting started. We already heard from. Uh, well, we do exactly. We got the, we got the nickel. Like that's critical. If you look at any long, uh, one thing we didn't talk about with Mark is when you think about um, electric vehicles, and we're going to get into it a little later. Uh, hopefully, we can we can ask Benchmark. But talking about the importance of nickel as it relates to. Uh, what's that called? Battery you, chemistry. No, what, 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 you range. Need to range, oh, range. Uh, uh, range. Range. That's it. Range. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> range. We all know you need range <laughs> to get from point A to point B. And and the exactly. nickel chemistries are basically it, right? And so that's that's why nickel is so important. And the way we think about nickel is that it's the deep value battery metal commodity, right? Like you know, lots of chatter about lithium, and we, we understand, and the prices come off there. Copper, obviously, everyone understands, but. But I think nickel is the one where you, you're you're getting the deep value. So that is nickel. That was Canada nickel. Scott, who do we got next? We got an interesting story. Ooh, next, next we got uh, John Champalia. We got Sprott coming up next. They're a de- they're a big investor in all these battery metals. So it'd be good to hear from them. Stay tuned. We're excited to again have Sprott, a big commodity investor in the house, and we're joined by John Champalia. Um, he's CEO of Sprott Asset Management. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Hey, no five o'clock shadow. This is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're all powered up. You got a nice lunch because we got a lot of questions yeah, for you. I don't know awesome. how you guys do it, man. This is a this is a marathon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I, you know, my dictionary word dictionary is going to get down to like three <laughs> words by the end of it. <laughs> All right, so John, we got to start off just talk about Sprout a little bit. You guys have a storied history in commodities. I'm wondering what is the opportunity you continue to see in commodity exposure that other providers of investment solutions, ha- you know, have overlooked and seem to continue to overlook in your view? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, yeah, we're we're obviously longtime commodity and, and natural resource investors, and what we see playing out right now is the formation of a new commodity supercycle, which is exciting because. Uh, as, 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 as you know, uh, we've been waiting a long time for another one, but the difference is going to be the last one, which, which pr- produced incredible returns in the two thousands was really about China industrializing, China, urbanizing, building 30 new cities and all of the, you know, basic materials and metals that, that went into that, that infrastructure, uh, build out this. Uh, commodity supercycle, we think will be largely driven by energy transition. And that 
covers a number of metals. Some of these metals um, obviously are much smaller in size than you know the big traditional uh, metal markets, but they are going to uh, be big beneficiaries of these of the transition to you know three three main components. That is the desire to produce cleaner energy. That is greater electrification. So that comes down to transmission of electricity. And then finally, uh, electrification of mobility. That's everything from two wheelers, three wheelers, obviously cars, trucks, and then eventually, you know, you never know with shipping and or, or uh, air travel, whether those become more electric, you know, driven. Um, and that is obviously creating very interesting opportunities across, you know, what is becoming new supply chains and battery metals. That's a great point you made because the last cycle was about one country really ramping up their demand. This is more a global demand story, right? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's obviously, um, it's, it's still uneven in terms of, you know, which countries are focused on what priorities, you know, Western mm -hmm. countries obviously are very focused on decarbonization and net zero, you know, less affluent countries are, are focused still on increasing just, you know, basic energy, uh, usage, but it'll, it'll, it'll have different, it'll play out differently. So perhaps in a country like India, it's going to be more about electrifying, you know, two wheel vehicles like scooters and motorcycles, as opposed to places like China and, and, and Europe and Canada and us, which is obviously starting to move to more, uh, adoption of electric vehicles, which are obviously much more battery intensive. Got it. Now, the Sprott Energy Transition Materials ETF and Lithium Miners ETF are the only two ETFs that offer pure play exposure to these two themes. Could you tell us how you decided before anyone else that the market needed these strategies and then maybe also how you decide on the holdings? I, I have a chart that you guys have provided that's helpful for that. Yeah, sure. So we, uh, you know, we obviously have we've been talking to a lot of investors around the globe. A lot of those discussions started with uranium. And what we quickly realized is that people weren't just investing in uranium, they were investing in copper and lithium, uh, as well as other metals. So it was a much more holistic thematic uh, of, of interest across this, this uh, spectrum of battery metals. When we looked at some of the uh, offerings that were available in the market, we really found uh, two main drawbacks. One, um, institutional investors historically have just simply bought uh, ETFs that hold futures contracts. We really don't love those products for a whole host of reasons, but more importantly, there aren't really active, you know, futures markets for a number of these emerging energy metals like, uh, lithium, uh, even uranium and cobalt and whatnot. So you really can't capture the, 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 the uh, these kinds of emerging, uh, metals. Second of all, when you looked at some of the equity oriented battery metal type of, of ETFs and whatnot, what we found is they're a real hodgepodge, everything from, you know, upstream companies trying to produce these metals to kind of midstream companies producing batteries to downstream companies like car companies, EV companies. And it, it was a real hodgepodge across the supply chain. Second of all, um, they were also very skewed to Chinese oriented companies. And third of all, they were also included many diversified miners. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with diversified miners, but you don't get the pure play exposure that you're trying to achieve. So for example, you might have, you know, a world-class miner and you're, you, you may think, well, I'm going to buy this because of its copper related assets, but 
when you really peel back the layers of the company, you realize, well, you know, 25% of its, its revenue stream is related to copper, for example. And you're really, you know, getting unintended exposure to things like coal and iron and, and other minerals. So when we went about designing our indexes in partnership with NASDAQ, we took a very upstream focus, uh, first of all. And then second of all, we really want to focus on pure play companies. And we, we basically try to define that as companies with at least 50% or more of their revenue and or asset base that's tied directly to the battery metals. So we don't have things like BHP or Rio or Valet in our indexes. We tend to skew to more of the smaller mid cap companies uh, that give us more targeted exposure. And then the last point I'd make is this is such a, a dynamic market universe. It is changing quarter to quarter. Companies are, are, are making acquisitions. Companies are spinning off, spinning off assets. New companies are going through public you know, IPO process. And so the landscape of companies in the battery metals universe is changing. And so as a result, every six months, we're looking at the whole universe. How is it changing? How are those companies changing the revenue mix? And we're basically adding and deleting companies. So to maintain that pure play exposure, and we're also weighting the companies based on how much exposure they have to different metals. So it's a very dynamic process. Now this is all rules-based, it's passive, but as you can tell from my explanation, we have our, we're, you know, we're very close to the investment process in terms of company selection weighting. We give all of that research to our partner at NASDAQ. They build and, and calculate the indexes for us. And we think they're a, a, you know, a more pure play expression of, of the thematics that people are trying to get exposure to. Yeah, John, uh, you know, uh, and don't want to name names, but there, there's a, the, one of the uh, one of the older uh, lithium ones. I, I, all of those issues, I, obviously, I don't want to name the name, but all of those issues you've highlighted are actually all in that. I'm like, oh, I want, you know, and, you know, you get this ticker that sounds lithium like, but then you're you look under the hood and all of those things that you've just said, it almost is like the antithesis of why I would not want to own something like that. You're getting like some midstream exposure in China. Like it's just so far gone. It, like you're not getting, as you just said, right. You're, you're not getting that mining exposure that you want. That's exactly it. I think everybody knows what, what ETF we're talking about, but I, I <laughs> there, there are some other examples where we've dissected um, ETFs and what we what we found is that in one case, and I'm referring specifically to a, a very large copper mining ETF in the world, what we did uh, by dissecting holding by holding is we determined that only 58% of the assets or revenue of the holdings have anything to do with copper. The rest of it is, you know, other metals that have nothing to do with copper. And, uh, you know, we brought that, that particular kind of insight to an institutional client and they're like, wow, uh, we had no idea. You guys are the experts, obviously, even though these are passive rules-based indexes, you guys have your fingerprints all over them and, yeah. you know, incorporating, integrating your, your knowledge as longtime investors in commodities. So that's the, that's the differentiation we're trying to bring to the market. We don't want to bring more me too products. You know, the world has enough of those. So, so we're really trying to find a, a unique value proposition where we can, we can help fill a gap in the market. I think a good point is passive just means going forward it's passive, but it was originally put together, right? And so it sounds like what Sprott does is put a lot of thought into the indexes that form this passive index, right? So it's not just don't think about it, slam some things together. There's a yeah, lot of uh, insight that goes into it. Exactly. It's not a set it and forget it. I mean, my analyst that's sitting next to me here in Toronto right now, he's going through, I think, 800 companies 
uh, looking at their financial statements and trying to figure out exactly what how their revenue mix has changed uh, from six months ago because we're getting ready to rescore our, our indexes and give that data to NASDAQ and uh, we will rebalance those indexes based on, on how this universe is changing. So it's a, it's a dynamic process, even though it's, it's completely rules-based. Uh, wow, that's, that's really helpful. Now, most investor media attention that I found over the past few years seems to have gone to copper, lithium, and graphite due to the recent supply shortages. Now, are there other battery metals that you think are underfollowed versus the potential for tight supply demand and higher prices? Or are those the three key minerals for a reason? Yeah, I mean, lithium has obviously uh, captured the spotlight for the last, let's call it two and a half years because of its meteoric rise. It was the best performing commodity bar none for two years. Obviously, it's, it's going through a, a pretty significant correction. Um, copper, I think, obviously, is people are becoming more and more aware of how important uh, copper is going to be in this kind of world of electrification. It's really the backbone. Um, graphite, I would say, is is really about, you know, China's stranglehold. I mean, almost all the natural and synthetic graphite produced today comes from China. So we've basically given them the whole supply chain. But I would say, um, you know, the one is that's a little less known is, is probably nickel. And I mean, I was just listening to your, your previous guest, and I, I think um, nickel is, is received, um, I'd say, less than its fair share. And obviously, it's received a bunch of very negative publicity because of the LME breaking a year and a half ago, really kind of mm -hmm. spooked and, and, and scared a lot of investors off of nickel. But in terms of battery metals, I think the one insight I would share is that obviously nickel is a very plentiful commodity in the world, but there's two very different kinds of nickel. There's class one nickel, which is incredibly high purity, which is what we need for batteries. And then there's class two nickel, which is obviously very plentiful and cheap and used for stainless steel. Um, and so class one nickel deposits um, are really what everybody is, is after, these sulfide-based deposits. So yes, there's a lot of nickel, but you know the, the, the energy and carbon intensity to, to transform class two nickel to class one nickel is, is not favorable. OEMs definitely do, do not want to want that kind of feedstock into their batteries for, for uh, you know, environmental purposes. So um, class one nickel is obviously something that we remain very bullish on. And over the years, you know, nickel is comprising a much larger component of the overall battery cell. And it's, it's basically because the price of cobalt, when it really spiked a few years ago, battery makers figured out they could reduce the percentage allocation of cobalt in favor of nickel and keep the range, which is really important, and also maintain, you know, acceptable levels of thermal dynamic uh, um, stability by moving that cobalt weight all the way down to 10% in some cases. So nickel's been the beneficiary of, of the reduction of, of, of use of, of um, cobalt the last, I'd say, three, four years. Yeah, that's a benefit I think people don't um, weight as much is, is if there's lower nickel prices right now and you see these other battery metals becoming more expensive, increases the chances that the weighting of nickel in the battery chemistry stays where it is or increases. And then if you have rising prices, well, you're getting even, there's even more uh, demand for nickel than there would have been because of the price. Exactly. I mean, years ago, nickel composition would be about one third of the battery. Now, some of the batteries are, are up to 80% nickel. So that is going to drive a lot of demand for class one nickel over the coming years. I hope everyone's listening. Nickel, don't count nickel out. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the sleeper one. That's the sleeper battery metal. Yeah, we like that. 
Now, John, just to end things off, could you remind those listening what the key benefits have been historically to having commodity exposure in a diversified portfolio? Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, commodities um, behave very differently than traditional asset classes like stocks and bonds. So they've always provided very low correlation and diversification against the real big buckets of a portfolio. Um, second of all, you know, these commodity bull markets and cycles last longer than a typical economic cycle. So if you think about an economic cycle, let's let's say lasting four or five years, commodity cycles can last eight to 10 years because of the very long lead times with CapEx and expiration development. So we are in the start um, of a new bull market. You know, you, you're talking about a very long runway of potential returns uh, that investors can 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 try to to achieve. So I think that's the, the key target. You know, I'm going to come back to battery metals because when we talk to institutional investors, uh, they very kind of lazily invest in commodities by often buying like the Bloomberg Commodity Index or the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, which is really just a, a basket of futures contracts, which are heavily oil and gas and heating oil kind of uh, focused. They do have some energy metals in them, very small weights to things like nickel and, and copper, but they're completely missing things like uranium, lithium, cobalt, um, other, other metals that obviously have much more uh, favorable growth expectations over the years, coming years, as EV adoption is obvious, obviously accelerating. And, you know, yes, some of these commodities are volatile because they're nascent industries as well. Like lithium is a very nascent industry. We really didn't need a lot of lithium, you know, four or five years ago, but now we will because the adoption of EVs is really starting to accelerate. And yes, we're not growing at maybe 40 percent um, this year like we were in the last few years, but we're probably still growing at 28, 30 percent. Uh, that little bit of difference in growth expectations, it's amazing how it can impact the price and obviously the, the stocking and, and destocking cycle at, at some of the OEMs. But, you know, the last stat I saw in today was in the U.S. so far year to date, 17% of new car sales this year have some kind of battery. That'd be complete EVs, hybrids, and, uh, you know, plug-in hybrids. And I would say the U.S. is behind other markets in terms of EV adoption. So, What's driving that is obviously price parity. You know, we're, we're slowly getting to a point where electric vehicles are becoming more and more close, if not uh, on par with in traditional ICEs. I think younger generations are increasingly focused on electric vehicles than let's say myself or my parents. So I think there is a generational shift going on. And obviously as the OEMs expand production and bring costs down and provide consumers with more choice, I think you're going to you're going to see accelerated adoption. You're starting to see lower cost uh, EVs uh, start to become imported in a number of markets. So when I go to South America or Europe, I do see Chinese EV cars driving around. These are very small, like low cost, uh, very you know ideal for urban centers where you're not driving you know hundreds and hundreds of kilometers a day. Uh, and obviously, there's some some concerns about protectionism in some of these markets, but. You're going to see a proliferation of these lower price point cars, uh, including coming to North America over the coming years that are going to be most likely lithium phosphate iron ba uh, based batteries, which are lower range, you know, lower energy density, but much, much cheaper. Uh, so I think we're going to have a, a much broader suite of EVs, which will accelerate adoption in the coming years. Yeah. 
Man, this yeah. this is quite quite a conversation. Yeah, Thank you for uh, d diving deeper into your products. So it sounds like you know Sprout has a lot of exciting products uh you know out live in the works and so uh thank you for stopping by and, and talking more about battery metals thank you for having me guys good luck on the rest of the conference thank you john <laughs> thank next you. time we got to do a a sprot grizzle hat collab we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll talk to you we'll get we'll get in the lab okay. on that <laughs> take care guys uh, guys thank you that was that was john from sprot and always a pleasure uh guys next up oh, we're gonna kick right into it Christian Easter Day. This is a unique one of the largest and most exciting copper projects in the world. And we all know we're all bullish on copper here. So it's going to be great to hear from him. Let's kick in. Welcome back. Grizzle battery metals one-on-one. -on -one. Copper is the it. It's the hot battery metal. And we got one of the hottest stories, bar none. Hot Chili CEO, Christian Easterday. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you both. Thank you. All right, Christian, let, let's kick it off with your Costa Fuego project. It's maybe one of the largest copper projects globally that's not owned by a major miner. So given how unique this asset is, I'd just love to hear how the project came together, kind of the Hot Chili story, if you will. Sure. Well, let's, uh, let's try to wrap up 15 years of my life and our teams exactly. work into a uh, overnight uh, billion ton success story. So um, look, we, we listed the company in 2010 um, towards the end of the last copper cycle, started consolidating this region of Chile, which is about 600 kilometers to the north of Santiago on the coastline, trying to keep it low, low altitude, trying to keep in the middle of regional infrastructure that would advantage the project got a great discovery called Productora, a large open pitable half a percent copper deposit on the coast uh, back shortly after we listed the company in 2010. Uh, and since then have, uh, have invested very heavily in the, in, in the Costa Fuego project, which has now grown to be a large consolidated play. Uh, in 2019, we added the Cordadera Porphyry discovery, which lifted our resource base almost four times uh, to currently sit at just under 1 billion tonnes and two bulk scale deposits. And we're con continuing to, um, to build on that position as we, uh, as we look to further increase scale. Great, that was a helpful overview there. Now, I wanted to talk about elevation because I know that's important in project economics. So Costa Fuego looks to be one of the lowest elevation copper projects in Chile. It's also near the ocean. And most importantly, you have a water permit in hand that you've, you've said takes 10 years to acquire. Can you explain the major benefits to the project and to hot Chile from elevation and access to water? Yeah, no, great, great sort of points because they really are two of the key differentiating points on this project. You know, there are not a lot of large scale copper developments in the world that are outside of the control of the majors. So when you've got literally uh, those large projects such as our peers over in North America, the Philos, the Solarises, the Solgolds, the Los Andes, um, when you only have a few companies developing those projects and most of them sit at high altitude without water secured, um, certainly Costa Fuego differentiates. We're under a thousand meters, um, the location of our central processing hub is about 740 meters altitude, um, 50 kilometers from port, 
right on the Pan American Highway. It's probably the lowest altitude of any of the senior projects in the world. And what that really means is that we get a significantly lower operating cost um, on our study. And we also get a very, very reduced capital cost. Um, the project is about half the cost of any of our peer projects um, to put out a large amount of metal production, which is currently studied at a rate of around 100,000 tonnes of copper production per annum and around 50,000 ounces of gold per annum. So elevation is one of the key differentiators. And then secondly, when we look at the water situation, and you mentioned it took hot chili 10 years to secure its maritime concession to extract seawater on the coast. Um, and included in that was the last two years was also securing the actual physical land on the coast. So we are one of the only large scale developers in the world uh, that is holding a maritime concession. Now that is very, very important as a de-risker if you actually want to build a large scale copper project in the medium term. Uh, I think that some of the recent articles um, on the concerns of supply for the global copper sector really relate to water scarcity um, and water security. And this is one of the key things that is holding back major developments, particularly in Argentina and Chile, uh, where uh, some one third of the world's uh, global copper production comes from. Uh, these projects are starved of water, they're high altitude in nosebleed countries, they're very high capital intensity. So it makes it extremely unique that Hot Chile, after 15 years of investment on the coastline, has built such a large scale hub. And we find it very hard to find any large scale project um, that has those credentials. Christian, it's interesting that like, like when you look at other corporations' presentations, they really don't talk about the, this elephant in the room. It, it, it just is, is this something the industry as a whole just as it, you know, is, is choosing just to push to the side. Like this is like real and it, you know, you guys are in a very advantaged situation. I just want wondering your thoughts about the industry as a whole. <clears throat> yeah, well, obviously look, CEOs want to talk about their strengths and, and that's fine. We, we talk about our strengths and I, I think, you know, that as you say, it's an elephant in the room. Um, perhaps this uh, relates to uh, either the timeframes and the difficulty through permitting um, to acquire such assets. Um, as, as we mentioned, you know, 10 year journey for Hot Chili to secure those assets. Perhaps we'll see those processes streamlined in the future with governments such as Chile um, making some, some statements about that recently. Uh, but, but what it really comes down to is Hot Chile from the beginning has set out to systematically de-risk this project, secure all of the permitting we require, the easement corridors, the surface rights, the water rights, the power transmission connection to the central grid. Um, all of these things you require if you're going to build a project. Um, and perhaps uh, maybe Hot Chili uh, never started this journey with a for sale sign in our front yard. <laughs> that's, that's a great rundown of, of what can drive project economics beyond just grades and the typical things you think about. Now, I wanted to talk about the backers of Hot Chili because you have some big ones. So mining giant Glencore is a major shareholder. They're right around 9%. 
Now, I'm curious, when did they initially invest? And what do you think specifically drew them to Hot Chili of all the copper projects in South America they could have invested in? Yeah, that's that's a, that's that's really good uh, question also. And uh, <clears throat> luckily, I have a great relationship with, uh, with some of the senior management and executives in Glencore. Um, Glencore took an investment of nearly two years ago now. Uh, it was a strategic investment they invested to take a position of 9.9% uh, in hot chili at the time. Uh, there were several uh, larger companies and corporates that were looking at that strategic block that uh, hot chili had available, um, really to bring on a strategic partner and, and, and shareholder that had a significant amount of experience in the large copper business. You know, Glencore on a yearly basis is either the second or third largest producer in the world. And, no doubt that will probably um, that position will continue to be cemented. So, you know, with I think with over over four thousand employees in Chile uh, and major operations in Chile and globally in the copper sector, you know, they're they're an extremely knowledgeable partner in terms of constructing projects, operating projects, and I guess their comments to me was, you know, they'd gone through the uh, projects not controlled by the majors. And their global team has a very significant database, um, and they were able to identify Hot Chili as one of those projects. I think, really, that represented one of the lowest risk projects um, capable of meeting production before the end of the decade. And so it was about scale, it was about location in Chile, um, low altitude water, and 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 really the overall risk profile of the project. And so. Those were really the primary drivers, I, I guess, that I've been told for Glencore's investment. Um, what was really unique is that Glencore came in and made that strategic investment without a 100% life of mine offtake, um, which is very typical of a Glencore investment in this sector. So that was something that, uh, that we were very keen to ensure that we uh, maintain that optionality on our offtake so that we maximise our um, non-dilutive funding optionality as we approach financing investment decision. So that was key for us. However, we did want them as an offtake partner and we were quite prepared to bring them in as our benchmark term offtake partner for 60% of our offtake on just the first eight years of the project. So what that means is we have a we're probably one of the strongest uh, global partners for offtake. Um, they handle over 52% of the global copper concentrates uh, in terms of trading. And it means that we also have a significant amount of interest. We have some 160,000 tonnes of annual copper concentrate that is non-committed. And that means that we have a significant amount of interest from other global offtake partners in the Japanese, Korean uh, and global uh, space. Uh, and I guess the second very interesting thing about the Glencore deal is we have a very aligned, I guess, strategy to develop this project. <clears throat> and, you know, I guess when Glencore signs up to, you know, the fact that they will be able to hold a 9.9 position and, and they have to maintain a 7.5 position to maintain their offtake and their, and their uh, director on the board, the head of their global copper group, Mark Jameson, um, then that's really quite a unique aspect of the transaction we undertook with Glencore. So great to have them on board. Now, so that was, that was a really great, uh, you know, getting, pulling behind the curtain a little bit. Thank you for taking us there. 
I just want to talk about resource quickly here before we run out of time. So you have two mineral resource upgrades planned over the next year and a half. I guess it's safe to assume that you expect your resource will be above the current 3.4 million tons by the time you make a construction decision. And secondarily, as resources go up, should we assume that the economics of the pro project could improve as well? Yeah, correct. And look, it's a, it's a very simple strategy. Um, we have been clear from the beginning. Uh, we feel that this entire regional area on the coastline, this, this regional consolidation effort that we're putting in, uh, we're not finished. <clears throat> Over the last few months, um, we've been focused on uh, exploration uh, and resource growth through the drill bit. Uh, we've been recently pivoting towards our new growth pipeline of targets within our own land holding. And we've also been going through what I describe as a period of harvesting within the region. So we've been harvesting tier two family run uh, operations and discoveries that have been made in the region uh, for very uh, low cost option agreements that allow us to get in, have a reasonable amount of time to put drilling into these projects for the first time that sit within close distance to our central processing hub. And what that effectively means is we're, we're, uh, we're skipping uh, discovery risk uh, for often a 50 or a $100,000 option payment to give us access to, to the properties and then an agreed purchase price should the deposit meet our criteria. Uh, so at the moment, we're pushing resource growth um, on the exploration front. Uh, we're continuing the consolidation of the region. We've announced uh, three new areas that have come in in the last three months. There will be more announcements on that front. Uh, and most importantly, you know, there are a number of tier two, but also tier one opportunities, which the company has been pursuing. Uh, we see this 100,000 tonne per annum copper production hub um, growing towards 150,000. And to do that, uh, we're obviously um, very focused on growing that uh, circa 930 million tonne resource base and looking to double that over the coming years as we approach FID, um, primarily through the drill bit and through further consolidations in the region. Hmm. I like that strategy. That's an interesting strategy. Now, before we end off, you have a really good uh, chart in your deck that shows your project roadmap. So you're fully funded for at least the next 18 months. Can you just quickly take us through what the most important milestones are coming up that uh, viewers and we should be looking for? Yeah, look, I mean, just firstly, what, what's standing behind that time frame? You know, we're in a soft market. Uh, Hot Chili spent its time very wisely last year um, looking at its funding optionality. We were able to secure uh, around July an agreement uh, for a uh, significant investment by a Cisco, um, some $23 million being invested by the Cisco Gold Royalties team into this project uh, for a 1.1% effective royalty over production. And, and what that means is, yes, we're one of the few companies that avoided significant dilution this year in a soft market uh, and will continue to ride through this, uh, this soft market uh, well-funded and without a funding overhang. So that gives us enough oxygen to target our growth strategy, um, deliver our uh, next resource upgrade toward the end of this year. Um, perhaps that may be pushed into January. Um, our team are working very hard and hopefully we uh, we get there before the Christmas deadline. Um, but most importantly, 
look at pre-feasibility, which is largely complete. And that's very, very helpful when you don't have to start funding an entire pre-feasibility and you have 80% of the pre-feasibility complete. Uh, we'll be looking to deliver that towards the end of next year. And obviously the time between now and then is all about our scale up opportunity. If we can do that, then ultimately we are able to drive the C1 cash cost, which is in a very competitive position at the moment at $1.33 per pound US um, net, net of byproduct credits. But look, what a scale up does for us is drop that cash cost towards the $1.10 per pound territory and firmly within uh, quartile one on the, on the global cash cost curve. Um, no doubt as we approach financing and construction on this project, the cash cost curve continues to drive to the right. So anything we can do on economy of scale to make sure that this project is insulated regardless of copper price really just makes sure that um, we're one of the first in line um, for financing. And we believe that, uh, that the latter part of this decade is going to be very, very attractive with very different economics on these large scale copper projects. So, um, so certainly our timing to pre-feasibility next year and then our two year planned bankable feasibility uh, while we're going through our approval process on our environmental impact assessment, um, which is on track to be also delivered towards the end of next year, um, puts us in a really strong position uh, that we'll be delivering one of the first 100,000 tonne per annum copper projects outside of the majors before the end of the decade. Great. Well, Christian, um, that's all the time we have, but I, I, I don't know about you, Tom. It feels like Costa Fuego is kind of a diamond in the rough. So thank you so much for stopping by, telling us more about the project. And we look forward to tracking a development uh, as you move through time. So that was Christian Easterday, CEO of Hot Chili. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Christian. Thanks, guys. All right, everyone. Battery metals keeps on rolling. Keeps going. We've got another copper story, so don't go anywhere. It's, copper, we got you covered on copper. Stay tuned the whole show. We got it. Your voice echoes in the night. It is a pleasure to have uh, Aurora Davidson from the one, the only, the most unique copper company that we know. That's for sure. Amerigo. Uh, as people know that uh, we are uh, fans of the dividend yield in commodities. Get paid while you wait. And with Amerigo, you get paid quite a lot. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to let Scott kick off, the, uh, kick off the questions. Yeah, so Aurora... Amerigo produces copper without a copper mine, and that makes your business model unique in the copper industry. Could you just, for anyone who isn't familiar with your company, provide an overview of how you do it? And I'll throw up a slide. Sure. Yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. We have a, a very unique business model because we don't have any, any resources. We don't have a mine. What we're doing is producing copper concentrate from the waste stream of one of Chile's largest copper mines, which is Codelco's El Teniente mine. So essentially what we do is we receive uh, tailings from El Teniente. We have two sources of tailings. We have their daily production, uh, which is huge. Um, so we get those tailings and we call them fresh tailings. And we also have the rights to historic tailings deposits that were deposited decades ago by El Teniente uh, close to the uh, plant that we have in, in Chile. So we receive those two um, streams of, of tailings. We process them through a, 
a traditional uh, a copper concentrator, which involves uh, mainly grinding and flotation. And we produce a copper concentrate that is totally undistinguishable from the copper concentrate that is produced in a traditional uh, copper mining uh, process. And now the, the beauty of, of the business model is that we get to sell uh, that copper at market prices. We, we pay a royalty to El Teniente based on the amount of copper that we produce and based on the copper price, but we get to produce copper from tailings, return the tailings to El Teniente, and get the full benefit of a marketable uh, copper concentrate without having to do either uh, all the activities that are entailed in mining prior to processing or holding on any environmental responsibility for those tailings once they exit our plant. Wow, that was very helpful. I like that you guys don't have that mining risk, which can be substantial, we, we obviously know. Now you have a slide in your deck that says Amerigo is not a mining company. If not, how should investors think about Amerigo? You should think of, uh, of Amerigo as a copper factory. And when we say that we're not a mining company, it's, it's not just a marketing uh, pitch that we're doing. Uh, if you look at what, what, what the traditional process in, 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 to produce copper entails, it, it involves two distinct stages. You have mining and then you have the processing of, 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 of the material into the copper concentrate. Uh, what does mining in, entail? It entails all the visuals that you can think of when you think of, of a mining operation, a, a big open pit or a big underground operation. You have the drilling, you have uh, the blasting, you have the loading of all that rock, the hauling, the, the big trucks. All of that doesn't occur at our operation at all. Our process starts at, at the processing stage only. So it, it is essentially a, a copper concentrator, a copper uh, processing plant. Uh, where, as I said before, we do grinding, we do flotation, but that's it. We don't have to undertake all of the prior work uh, entailed in mining. Uh, I, I mentioned we have no environmental liabilities uh, on a going forward basis. Um, we don't have to spend a single dollar on exploration for future resources because our, our resource equivalent is essentially the material that will continue to be produced by El Teniente uh, in the future. And so we are a copper factory. That's, that's how you should think of us. And as I mentioned in, 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 in the first question, the fact that we get the full exposure to market copper prices with this reduced risk is what's making Amerigo a very unique copper producer. Uh, also the fact that we have invested the money that we needed to invest in order to have this uh, operation running smoothly we're producing a, a, a substantial amount of copper. We actually produce the equivalent of what a mid-sized copper producer uh, is expected to produce on an annual basis, north of 60 million pounds of copper. So under those conditions of low uh, capital requirements and strong um, uh, copper price exposure, that's what makes us uh, able to return capital to our shareholders. Now you mentioned tailings a few times. I want to dig into that. So you rely on copper tailings from someone else to function. Can you tell us more about the expected mine life and your contracts with the El Teniente mine? Sure, and, and I, I think those are two separate questions. So let me start first by discussing El Teniente. El Teniente, as I said before, is the world's largest underground copper mine. 
it began operations in 1905. Just think about that, 1905. And it has been operating continuously since then. Um, I've, I've been at El Teniente. It's an impressive operation. It has more than four and a half kilometers of underground tunnels. It is a full mining complex. What does that mean? It has the underground copper uh, mine. It has also an open uh, pit um, area. It has a leaching plant. It has an SXCW plant. It has a, a concentrator. It has a smelter. So it's a copper. It's a copper world within its own uh, complex. It's uh, uh, significant. Uh, it's over 93,000 hectares. Uh, so it's a, it's a it's a mind blowing experience to be at El Tenien to understand all what they're doing. Uh, now let's look at their production. In 2022, El to produced 405,000 tons of fine copper. That's on their own 1.8% of global copper mine production. So it, it's, a, it's, it's, um, it's a significant animal. Uh, now going forward, what are their plans? Uh, they have a, an expansion plan uh, rolled out. Uh, with the goal of securing 50 more years of copper production at a processing rate of around 137,000 tons per day. So this is significant. Not only have they been in operation since 1905, and currently we present uh, rounded numbers, 2% of global copper mine production, they have the plans of continuing to do this for at least another 50 years. What is this costing them? $6 billion of approved CapEx. They have incurred in this um, expansion projects around $4.2 billion to the end of 2022. So they're, they have a clear path ahead uh, to continue to be having this, this prominent place uh, in the copper world. Now, Amerigo, through its uh, operation in Chile, which is called NBC, has had a contract with El Teniente for 30 years. The contract runs back to 1992. Um, uh, we currently have a term to the end of 2037. And traditionally, we have expanded uh, the, the term of the contract as the maturity term gets closer. So uh, the last uh, contract extension that we did gave us 16 more years of contract. Uh, our contract was set to expire in 2021. We renewed it and expanded it to 2037. So going forward, we have that uh, strategic relationship with, uh, with El Teniente um, through our existing contract, through the ability of uh, renewing that contract when it's time to do so. And obviously, uh, on the back of El Teniente's significant and ambitious plan to continue to produce copper for at least another 50 years. Uh, so that's very helpful on, on the contracts. You, you successfully renewed this contract uh, before, and it's a Absolutely. longstanding contract. Correct. Okay, now I really want to talk about risk management because we know in mining as you can plan, 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 there's still unexpected things that happen. And so if for anyone who doesn't follow Amerigo, Chile actually had historic flooding in June of this year, and it knocked out all the, the power line to the national grid and there was historic flooding at Amerigo's facility. Yet they were able to bring back production in less than a month and they returned to peak production levels near the end of September. It sounds like there's no like lingering effects from this, which is actually pretty remarkable. So Aurora, is preparing for the unexpected a key focus for the management team at Amerigo? 
Look, I think that there are there are four ways of looking at risk. Uh, you can avoid risk, uh, you can accept risk, you can mitigate risk, and you can transfer risk. Um, for us, the acceptable way of, of looking at risk is risk mitigation. Um, avoiding risk, you can probably avoid risk only when you are decided to go into a joint, uh, into a new venture. Uh, so, for example, if you wanted to uh, expand into a, a different jurisdiction and you think that that's not an acceptable risk, you just don't take it. But once you're in operation, uh, avoiding risk is just not part of the game. You cannot do that. You cannot just uh, uh, um, pretend that the risk doesn't exist. Um, accepting risk is also just a way of saying I'm passively sitting here and uh, waiting for, for things to happen to my business. So for us, mitigation of, of, of risk has been a fundamental aspect of the business, at least for the last four or five years. So just to give you an example of how we look at it, uh, we see it in terms of identifying risks that have the likelihood of occurring. Uh, there may have a, a large or a smaller likelihood, but it's still, if there's a likelihood that they can occur, we want to look at those seriously. And we want to assess how can we mitigate uh, the damages that could come our way in terms of operational continuity in a way that is financially viable because there's always going to be a cost benefit to every decision that you make. And, and, and there will come a point when you say, yes, that risk is there. Um, I can mitigate it to some extent, but I cannot completely avoid that risk uh, uh, at a cost that makes sense to me. So uh, just to give you examples, you mentioned the flooding that we had this year. About two years ago, we started looking at the possibility of what could happen in the event of a substantial flood at the, at the facility. And we, as we assessed that we had risk, for example, of having our uh, pipes that transport the water and the slurry from the historical tailings deposit into the concentrator plant, uh, running the risk of, of, of going underwater if we had to face a, a major rain event. So we investigated ways of mitigating that risk we installed flotation equipment around all of those pipes before this rain ever occurred. So when the rains happened in, in June of this year, um, we were prepared, we were ready. That risk mitigation project really helped us tremendously. We probably wouldn't be uh, having this conversation uh, if we hadn't thought about that possibility occurring uh, and taking the necessary steps to, to, to mitigate that risk. Another example, uh, we are very dependent on power at MVC. Uh, we have three uh, power transformers and what could happen in one of those power transformers, um, you know, had a significant um, downtime and required major repairs. We cannot afford to have that happen. So we're uh, buying and installing a standby power transformer to have it just in case. And, and that just-in-case uh, consideration is quite important for us. Uh, so, in other words, what we have tried to do is mitigate risk when we can afford to mitigate that risk. Transferring risk is just not uh, an option for us. To whom are we going to transfer that risk, right? At the end of the day, uh, the buck has to stop, to stop somewhere. And in terms of, of um, what are what are the, the objectives that we see when we talk about risk mitigation? Obviously, operational continuity is one of them, but I would say for us, the two most significant risks that have to be avoided at all times are the risks to the health 
and safety uh, of our employees and risks of environmental damage. We have a maxim at MVC where every employee understands that no production goal is more important than any safety or environmental goal. And, and, and operating under those premises and then under that very clear, um, almost religious mandate is key to us and, and is key to the way we, we run our business at, at Amerigo. That's very helpful. I, I hope everyone saw that picture. I can't believe you're back to record levels of production with your assets basically buried underwater um, in, in a month or so. So that's that's pretty impressive. Hats off to you. Yep. Now it's got to be a strong Aurora, Yes. Yes. Aurora, maybe we can end things off. Uh, well, we can't end things off without <laughs> talking about the dividend. So you basically you have the highest dividend in the copper market. It's over nine percent right now. Can you just talk us through how you decide what is a sustainable dividend payout level? and then how you decide when to pay out special dividends or buyback stocks, because you've done all three recently. So curious to hear. We haven't done the performance dividend yet. That is waiting. Uh, oh, to you're occur. right. Yes, then buybacks. That's right. It, it, exactly, uh, because that is tied up to cover price. So basically, when our board of directors uh, um, determined that it was time to establish a, a return of capital policy, given where the company was, this occurred two years ago, we looked at how can we do, uh, how can we roll out a policy that will be sustainable through the cyclicality that will always occur in the copper in the copper market. Quarter on quarter, copper prices are going to fluctuate. We wanted to have a dividend in place, but we wanted that dividend to be safe and for shareholders to realize that that quarterly dividend could be counted on. So you have to set it up at a level that allows you to maintain it through um, the highs and lows of the copper market. And we've done that. And we've had a, a quite a successful um, uh, rollout of that quarterly dividend, uh, which has, uh, we, we rolled it, we started it at two cents uh, Canadian per share per quarter. We increased it to three cents Canadian per share per quarter uh, quite after, quite soon after rolling out the, 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 the capital return strategy. Now that gives you the base that gives you, uh, sort of your, uh, uh, uh the backbone of the capital, uh, return strategy. But what happens when you have surplus cash on top of that in response to stronger copper prices, that's when you have to have an additional set of mechanisms in place. And for us, those are the share buybacks and the performance dividends. Now, share buybacks are uh, when it makes sense to buy back our shares because they are at a market price that we consider makes an attractive investment for us, we're buying back shares. And we've been quite aggressive at buying back shares. We have re uh, retired 11% of our issued and outstanding in two years. So that basically means if you started being a shareholder of Amerigo in October of 2021, you own 11% more than what you held without having to invest a single cent more and without any tax consequences to you. That's that's fantastic on top of the dividend that you're getting quarter on quarter. And the performance dividend is going to be the, the cherry of the, uh, of, of, of the pie. Uh, that's a performance tied up to copper price. So the better performance in copper price, the higher the likelihood of that performance performance dividend kicking in for the benefit of shareholders. Wow, that was that was a great roundup, Aurora. As you as anyone following Grizzle knows, we love being paid to wait, and with Amerigo, you're being paid quite handsomely, actively, and then you still have upside to the copper price. That's what makes you guys special. 
So that was Aurora Davidson, CEO of Amerigo. Aurora, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Aurora. See ya. All right, so we're going to keep the train going. We're, uh, we're, we have so much to talk about. Uh, the next, uh, we have uh, our good friend, Mark Brennan, Ascendant Resources. Stay tuned. Hey, <laughs> welcome back to Grizzle Battery Metals one-on-one. We got none other than Mark Brennan, Ascendant Resources, Chairman of Ascendant Resources. Mark, nice to see you. Great, Thomas, Scott, great to see you guys, as always. <laughs> uh, Scott, kick it off. We got, we got some questions. Yeah, for you. I want to talk about Ascendant a bit. So, Mark, can you start us off by walking us through the strengths of the Lagoa Salgada project in Portugal that originally made you start down the long, but we know it's often profitable process of building a mine. Yeah, you know, the the uh, my, my experience with the Iberian Pyrite Belt started when I was running a company called Sierra Metals. And, and basically, I had, uh, as my head of exploration, uh, one of the top guys on the Iberian Pyrite Belt, who was at Matza, which is the Aguatanitas project that was sold by uh, by by uh, Mabidala and and um, and and um, the traders to to uh, Sandfire for 1.8 billion, and and basically what what I learned from him was that uh, really important to to uh, to any project on the Pyrite Belt is uh, the the geophysics. And when we went, when we got exposed to to the uh, when we got exposed to the the uh, Lagosa Gata property, one of the first things that really you know came out of, in, in very flashing lights was was the fact that the geophysics were very very strong, very strong indicators. We acquired the project, uh, the option on the project in 2018. Uh, basically, there was about six million tons, uh, very quickly and 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 very few drill holes and and meters later. Uh, we ended up at around 27 million tons of, of, of a global resource um, and really just following the geophysics. So that, that you know, is, is really the key component for any project that you have on the pyrite belt. Infrastructure is amazing. Uh, they've been mining for, for God knows how long, you know, depending who you listen to, 2,000, 3,000 years. Um, it's, it's a great belt. It's one of the most prolific uh, VMS uh, belts in the world. Uh, you know, 45 mines have been in production there. Uh, we're at the very western edge of the of the belt, and and what's interesting there is that we're we're one of the few mines that started underground and undercover, which is how this project has been you know left un, unfounded for so long. Wow, that's that's really interesting uh, background there. So you had a really good slide in your deck that mentions district scale potential, and I'm wondering in simple terms, can you talk us through what geological or competitor data you've seen that gets you excited about your project area? Well, you know, it's very common. Uh, it's very common on the belt uh, to to see first of all the the uh, you know once you once you get you find uh, different areas or or, or, or hotspots that you follow up and you actually have uh, VMS uh, massive sulfides. Uh, you know, generally they they tend to get a lot bigger and they come in clusters as well. Uh, so so when we started drilling here again, the the amount of drilling that we've done to get to twenty eight million tons is probably something in the region of about fifty thousand meters. Um, probably you know ten thousand meters of that or twelve thousand meters of that was for infield drilling. So so less than forty thousand meters has gotten us to twenty eight million tons, which is a tremendous yield. Uh, so I guess what we saw was we see our competitors, we see you know basically how most deposits have been found on the belt, um, and and frankly. You know, when we look at the Vendanova area of our of our of our property, which is uh, it's a very very small uh, component of the whole field. 
um, and, and of, of the Lagoa Salgada property. So from that perspective, um, right now we've got a north uh, deposit, a south deposit. It looks like they coalesce a depth. Um, you know, if you look at the, the competitors, most of these deposits are anywhere from 600 meters in length uh, to 1,000, 1,200 meters. Uh, you know, basically we're 130 meters uh, underground because of covered uh, tertiary material. Uh, but then we're only down, you know, less than a couple hundred meters. Uh, and, and frankly, in our in our most profitable area, the, the, the north zone with the massive sulfide, we're probably less than 150 meters underground. So so we've got a long way to go. Um, and, and basically what you just shown there is, is one, uh, you know, the, the, the deposit size looks like it's going to expand uh, fairly dramatically uh, laterally, but also at depth. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're a brand new project on this belt. Uh, lots of, of very, very significant and interesting exploration potential. Um, and, and, you know, when, when you're in this area, when you're on this belt, um, people, when they start, you know, all these deposits, all these companies, the Nevis Corvos, the, um, you know, the, the Aguatinitas, the, uh, you know, all these projects here, they start small, but they grow larger. And, and that's what we see happening with us. Great. I, I love that chart. I think I wish everyone had a chart like that, like just comparing the potential in your neighborhood versus what you're trying to go after. Is That's great. Now, can you talk us, to us about the recent streaming deal with Sprott? You're now, you're now cashed up. You're ready to go. Um, how much cash are you getting all in from this deal? And then how do you plan to use it? Yeah, so, so basically a couple of things. We, we announced that, uh, you know, in addition to the 15 million that we'd already uh, had in terms of stream from Sprott, we, we were adding another 4 million. Um, you know, what we're looking at is, is uh, our intention is to, to use this cash uh, to one, to file our, our uh, environmental impact uh, study probably in the next few weeks. Uh, so this should get us across the permitting bridge. Um, it should get us into the, the optimization of the, um, of, of the, the uh, feasibility study that we're looking at doing. And, and one, that'll be metallurgy. Two, that'll be sizing and, and throughput um, and, and scale on the mine. Um, I'm not sure that we're at the optimal level uh, today, but, but we envisage that by probably sometime in the, the end of the first quarter, uh, we should see some even better improved economics than we've seen before. Um, and to remind you guys, you know, one of the unique aspects that we have um, is that we've got a major international bank that's prepared to back us uh, with respect to, to project funding uh, on the back of, of the UK Export Credit Agency, uh, UCAF. And, and we hope to announce that probably in the next couple of weeks. But the, but the reality here is that UCAF has agreed uh, to provide us with up to 70% of our capital requirements. Um, I think it's up to about 158 million. And, and from that perspective, um, you know, once we get the optimized feasibility study completed, the, the, uh, we get the return of our, of our uh, environmental approval of our environmental impact study that we expect, uh, probably the first pass in about three, four months. Uh, and then a couple of months later, we'll, we'll respond to questions. So by third quarter, we should be in a position to, to really uh, start our construction process. Wow, you guys are moving fast. All right, <laughs> I like that. It, it's it's very fast. It's been it's been exhilarating, and uh, but but it's a great project, and and there's lots of scope for growth here. Now you mentioned a bunch of the milestones. Maybe I have a good chart, so you can just add anything that you didn't just cover. What are the upcoming uh, project and permitting milestones that we should be looking for? Um, I know you mentioned a, a few already. I'll throw up the slide while you're you're talking sure. about any we missed. So in the in the next couple of weeks, we should see the the filing of the environmental impact assessment. 
Um, so that's taken us a considerable period of time and, and now is complete. Uh, as you may recall, we are a project of natural interest within Portugal. Uh, so, so we've been working with the regulatory bodies throughout the whole process. And uh, from that perspective, um, you know, what we'll see is we'll see the, the um, you know, it'll take, it'll take a, probably about 90 days for, for their uh, feedback in terms of, of, of any questions. Uh, subsequent to that, uh, we expect it'll probably take us a couple of months to, to respond to their questions. Uh, so that'll be very important. Um, by the end of the first quarter, we're looking at an updated feasibility study uh, that basically will give us the, the um, uh, you know, improved economics from what we've we'll seen in the, in the existing feasibility study. You know, what's very positive is we're very confident that the existing feasibility study uh, meets the requirements and the needs of, of the, the project funding that we're looking for. But really, we just want to enhance those economics because we don't feel that uh, we, we've optimized the project to its fullest extent. Um, beyond that, the, the, um, you know, we will look at, at uh, again, completing the, the, um, the, the, the project funding uh, sometime at the end of the second quarter um, and, and looking for construction third quarter. That's great. I know there's a, there's a graveyard of projects with good economics that couldn't get the funding. So it's important that you guys, you have strong backers. And I know you've, you have some other projects that you've gotten funded. So uh, uh, good, good, good backing there. Yeah, well, we, we, we have announced, uh, you know, already that, that one of our other companies uh, has received a $420 million um, um, uh, mandate leader ranger uh, agreement with, with uh, TD Bank. Um, and, and this is the same process, but with a different bank, a major European bank, uh, to lead the Lagoa Salgada project. So, so you know, to your point, we're, we're kind of working backwards here. We've been very, very lucky to find a, an alternate form of, of funding, uh, which I think is going to be the future of funding for, for project finance for mines. Um, and and uh, basically, we kind of got early in the curve on, on this uh, funding uh, structure. Uh, but the reality is that, that uh, this is a tremendous asset for our company. Great. Now, the, the one last one I want to ask is you've given us a really good roadmap, so I, I, that's covered off. How much additional exploration do you plan to do from now until you decide to break ground? You, you mentioned it a bit maybe earlier. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we are. I mean, basically, you know, what's interesting is, is we, we've uh, recently shot some, some additional um, IP and, and just to, to you know, get deeper IP in terms of on, on the basic uh, north and south structures that we have already. Uh, we see five uh, different areas where, where there's immediate potential for, for sizable additions to our, our tonnage, uh, multiples of where we are today. Um, and, and that's, again, immediately adjacent to the north and south zones in the area that we are. So, so I think we're going to see probably between now and, and the end of the, the first quarter, we'll see the addition of, of uh, gravity to that IP. Um, and usually that combination of gravity plus IP uh, is a very, very good signal. And what's we, it's, what, it's what we've done in terms of utilizing our, our yield of drilling to get the tonnage that we have. Uh, so, so, you know, at the end of the first quarter, we should see some really strong signals of, of where and, and what potential we have to grow this resource in the immediate vicinity. Uh, but but it, looks, it looks pretty good so far. But, uh, you know, the second thing I'll say is that, uh, so we'll continue that process. We'll do a little bit of drilling into the second quarter. But part of the funding that we're looking at working with the UK Export Credit Agency includes a $10 million drill program on the project. So, so probably starting in the second quarter, in the third quarter, excuse me, uh, at the end of the second quarter, we'll be looking at, at starting uh, a 10,000 meter drill program, $10 million drill program, which is probably more than this project has ever had on it, drilled on it in its lifetime. 
So, so the reality is that, you know, this is included into the funding uh, that we're looking at. So it's a very cheap source of capital to, to fund uh, this exploration uh, and will give us probably, I would guess, another, you know, 25, 30,000 meters of drilling, uh, which will be very, very positive. Wow, that's great. So ascendant Resources moving at warp speed, which is what we want to see as investors in, in mining companies. So Mark Brennan, he's the uh, executive chairman and founder of Ascendant. Thanks for stopping by, Mark. Mark, always Hey, a great to see you guys, and thank you for your support. All the best. Enjoy. Thank you. All right, take care, Mark. All right, everyone, Battery Metals. We're uh, maybe not even halfway done, but we're hearing from some very interesting projects and investors all and, the way across. And we got a great keynote, so stay tuned. We got Ron McEwen, the one, the only. That's on the way. But next up, Blake Highlands, Lithium Ionic. You don't want to miss this one. It's getting spicy in the lithium world. <laughs> Be right back. Oh, hey, we're back with Crystal Battery Metals one-on-one. The trade just keeps going. Uh, Blake Highlands, CEO of Lithium Ionic. Blake, nice to catch up. How are you? Great. How are you? Very good. Very good. Uh, I'm going to let Scott kick off with the first question, but the, this is lithium. Very important. Um, it's it's getting interesting. We're, we're going to get into it. Scott, uh, kick it off. Yeah, exactly. So I noticed lithium ionic is in more, one of the world's most prolific lithium regions of the world. I'm talking about Brazil. Can you tell us more about the advantages of where you operate and what makes this part of the world so unique? Yeah, sure. I mean, a few things do. Um, most importantly, I think on any of these projects is, is unique geology and, and, a, and a belt that's kind of a, um, really one of a kind. I mean, the, the analog to this is really just the, the Pilgangura region and Greenbush's region of Western Australia, which is the only area that really produces any uh, mass quantity of, of hard rock lithium at this point, or spodumene. Um, and so we end up having a, a belt that produces massive crystal structures of, of uh, spodumene, um, unique, uh, certainly to this belt and, and what you won't find really anywhere else in the world. And then uh, to that end, you know, add on top of that a uh, a state in Minas Gerais that is a, a mining state that has a clear and uh, path forward for for mining companies um, to be permitted uh, rapidly um, and and move these projects into production much faster than than a lot of our peer group. Um, you kind of have the, the you know the perfect combination of uh, unique world class geology and, and scalability as well as you know a, a clear kind of tier one mining jurisdiction to, to to move you forward and and then on on top of that just. You know, a, a place that has unbelievable infrastructure already, paved roads, hydroelectric power. Um, yeah, I mean, an access to you know, communities of, of hundreds of thousands of people to, for labor force. It's uh, it's a pretty unique opportunity. That's a great overview. Now, I wanted to talk about your PEA a little bit. You just put one out and the numbers were super solid. So you had a 20 year mine life, 14 month payback, 120 percent IRR post tax. First of all, I'm just curious what lithium price drove the PEA? And second of all, what are the most important takeaways uh, for investors in your view from that? Yeah, uh, we used uh, 1,850 on the lithium price. So we felt like that was fairly safe for where, where uh, we're sorry, it's bodging price. So we, we felt that's fairly safe on, on where we are right now in, in the market. I think we're probably gonna see even a bounce back from where uh, lithium has pulled back to in, in the last uh, six months or so. And I think a key takeaway on, on these projects and this belt when you're talking about pricing is that 
Um, you know, you're looking at an all-in sustaining cost on a project like this, it's somewhere between $500 and $600 a ton. So if you're running it, you know, even $1,500 a ton spot mean price, you're still at high margin, fast payback, great projects. And, and this is where, um, you know, this jurisdiction, uh, the, the ability to be uh, DMS only, low cost of capital to build, you know, only $200 million roughly to build a project like this with a $1.6 billion NPV is, is incredible. Um, you know, we actually start to, to stack up really well against our peer groups in Spajmeen, but also, you know, this starts to, to make lipidolite projects look pretty um, questionable. And, and some of these DLE stories we heard about for a long time, you know, they, they, they will struggle at those prices, whereas projects like these will continue to look uh, very, very attractive. Um, I think when we look at the PEA here, one thing I always tell people is um, you know, we really never actually intended to do a PEA. We did a PEA to be able to show the market what, you know, this freeze frame moment in time looked like for the project. Um, but we're still growing. It's going to be more. The, the, the opportunity is getting bigger. Um, but, you know, even if we just started the project tomorrow, I think those are spectacular economics and and um, we're, we're pushing to be in production as fast as possible and then just continue to build on the back of that. Yeah, so that was my that was my follow up question. So you have a solid PEA in your back pocket now. What are you now able to do to continue moving the project forward and, and kind of what are next steps? Yeah, look, we, we kind of subscribe to something, you know, a different approach. And I think we expected lithium price to pull back quite a bit and, and honestly felt like it was a healthier market where it is now than when it was eighty, ninety thousand dollar lithium. And uh, it really wasn't going to work in, in a supply chain model that was trying to feed a, you know, an EV movement. It would just be too expensive. Uh, so we actually kind of always hoped we'd, we'd kind of get back to some of these levels and and we'd have a healthier business uh, moving forward. Um, and so in doing that, you know, we didn't really do the drill our brains out to add as many tons as humanly possible to try to build our market cap, sort of this you know, $100 million for every 10 million tons defined or something like that. And, you know, these rule of thumbs that were going around last year in a pretty wild lithium market. We, we just decided that the advantage of this belt and where we are was to be in production so much faster than so many other projects that are moving forward right now. And there are good ones all over the world, but they just won't move as quickly as us in, in the production. So um, our key focus has been on, you know, drilling to M&I scale uh, or, or category and uh, getting you know, geotech work done, getting hydrogeo work done, doing everything we need to do to feed um, into uh, production. So we actually submitted for our construction license uh, this month. We should have that back by, I'm saying, summer of, of next year, and we'd be in a position to construct the project. Um, we've got support from from the state, uh, the government, to move quickly uh, and actually bypass some of the um, early uh, um, kind of infrastructure licensing and construction licensing that would normally take place on a project like this, so an expedited process. And then we can follow that up with our mining license as we're constructing the project in, in summer of this year. So we feel like we're going to differentiate ourselves from a lot of our peer group by actually moving towards production. We know in this belt we're going to be able to add tons as we go along and, and, and drill, but we should be able to fund that with cash flow and, and continue to grow in the background as opposed to try to do that um, you know, before we, we go into production. So it's, it's a huge advantage for us. Yeah, that's, oh, that's really interesting. Now I want to talk about Sigma Lithium. They're an, another high potential project. So how does your you you mentioned them before? Uh, how does your project compare to theirs? Would you say? Yeah, look, I think Sigma is an, an amazing um, you know analog for us and an example for us. They're a blueprint right next door of, of how to get a project permitted 
built. Um, and really they're, they're the value gap we're, we're looking to close, you know, they're a $4 billion company. We're a $230 million company, same rocks, same geology. You know, they're, they're a kilometer from us, right? Um, 60 million tons of their resources on the South border of our project. So, um, really it's, it's no different as far as what the pegmatites are, the quality of the rocks, um, really what we would be mining is very much similar, how it will respond to the MS, um, all that kind of stuff is, is the same really, you know, we're, we're just trying to catch up as far as, um, what we're going to produce getting into production. Um, Anna, the team at, and Anna and the team at, at Sigma have done a phenomenal job of, uh, permitting rapidly during COVID. Um, they built the mill and up and running in, in eight months. Uh, and now they're, they're selling their concentrate. And, and I think that that's a, just a spectacular success story. And, and they actually did it on time and on budget, which is extremely rare, uh, yeah. for our, for our industry. So, um, you know, they have a great blueprint. We're, we're kind of following along. And when I, what I tell people is we don't want a lot of difference between their project and ours. We, we want it to look very similar. Yeah, it's a good model to follow. But you guys are no slouch either, because I know in just two years, you've taken the project from initial discovery to a potentially producing asset. It kind of seems too too good to be true. So how were you able to drive this project forward so quickly? Yeah, I mean, we have an unbelievable team. First of all, I think they're they're. I would point to them anytime. We have a Brazilian team on the ground that that uh, you know I would put up against any team in the world uh, from an exploration perspective. But also, I think it speaks to this type of deposit. I mean, it it's um. Uh, if, if I was looking at a gold, a gold project where you wanted to get similar type of economics, I mean, you, first of all, you wouldn't. But, you know, if, if you tried, you, you'd need 200 million tons of material, massive amounts of production per annum. Um, you know, projects like this, you know, 20 million tons is a great project. Uh, 20 million tons does 200,000 tons, of, you know, per annum for, uh, you know, for, for a long time of concentrate. And um, and ultimately, you know, you can define them quicker. Um, it takes less drilling. Um, and you know, the, the geology is fairly simple. So, uh, we're able to go from discovery to significant resource increase, um, and ultimately to, to, you know, PEAs and, and in the early, uh, new year, um, feasibility study as well, because, uh, hard rock lithium projects are define themselves quicker. Um, and, and ultimately are much more simplistic than, you know, complicated orogenic gold systems. And, and, uh, they don't need the same scale. They're low cost, high margin business. Awesome. Okay. Um, now, oh, I want to talk about lithium prices a little bit. So we all know that there was that big spike. Everyone got excited. Now prices are off to more normalized levels. Do you think, is this price correction actually viewed as a positive from your perspective? Because it just means we know how commodities work. Supply responds to prices. So if you have lower prices now, you have the marginal companies falling by the wayside. You guys have less competition for, for your lithium when it comes on. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely true. Um, and I think that uh, to, be, to be totally honest, I mean, what we're seeing is uh, China controls the, the general market right now. They have the conversion facilities. I mean, they have almost 70 plus percent of the, the conversion facilities in the world. And ultimately, um, when they stop buying, prices come way off. There is no other control on, on pricing. Now we're going to see them continue to, to buy. Auction process will come back and price will recover somewhat. But I think what this has done is highlighted you know, there are a lot of marginal projects out there. And every time there's a commodity boom, there's a thousand new companies made uh, overnight. And and some of them are going to fall aside and they're not going to get the funding to move forward. But um, projects like these and some of the really good projects around the world are going to show that, you know, even in a corrected lithium market, let's let's say spodumene's at $2,000 in a year, right? Yes, it's come off of $9,000, but it's still, you know, 100 times where it was, uh, you know, six years ago. So it's, it's still a fantastic 
um, opportunity. And I think that um, when I look at that, I look at a very healthy lithium space, a very healthy business for us. It's extremely high margin. Um, and the more it stabilizes, the more I think it's investable, uh, the more I think it's financeable. Um, and, and ultimately, it brings more players into the space that, that weren't there before. It brings mining companies in. It brings off, you know, uh, off takers in, automotive companies in. It brings trading houses in. It brings a whole new business forward uh, that wasn't there before. So, you know, I, I think right now we're in a much healthier space than we were a year ago uh, in, in $9,000 spot, you know, environment. But at the same time, I do think we are going to see kind of some of the excitement come back to space as, as China comes back online. That's a great perspective. I mean, investors, sometimes they always think they want to see higher prices, but volatility leads to some paralysis in the business world sometimes. And so you don't just want prices going to the moon. Things aren't going to get done. I, I come from the gold space where we're always waiting for like $8,000 gold. And we're wondering, like, why isn't it there yet? Why isn't it there yet? Um, <laughs> this this is all the opposite. I'm like, come on, settle down. Let's make a business. Out of this. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very different. Yeah. 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 Now, I wanted to maybe just end things off with um, some of the key catalysts. You know, if someone is watching your stock and they're saying, how do I know whether things are moving in the right direction? What are some things they should look for um, coming up in the next year or so that you think are important? Yeah, I mean, you, you can't sleep on anything we're doing. You miss it. I mean, the truth is we, we went from forming a company in May of last year making discovery, multiple resource estimates, a PEA. We've got a feasibility coming out in the new year. We've submitted for our construction license. We're bringing on COO to build this project, building the team behind that. Uh, we're financed. We've got you know almost $20 million in the bank. We're looking for strategic partners to finance the project. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of got all of the, the, you know, workings and catalysts of a project that's moving towards production, but just in hyper speed. So, you know, I think it's it's a great time to be to be buying into this space. Was prices have pulled back a little, the value proposition is fantastic, and you're just going to see us be extremely newsy over the next you know six to eight months as we move into that construction uh, phase and ultimately into production really quickly after that, and um, and ultimately close that gap to to Sigma's kind of valuation next door. I mean, that's a like I said, two hundred million dollar to four billion dollar value gap to to close. That's a nice valuation difference in someone like a kilometer away. You know, it's, you you wish you have something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a great proof of concept there. Blake, there's a ton of questions here on YouTube. I, I know we, we're, we, we've just been so jammed on time, but um, if you have a chance, uh, there's a good one. Maybe, you know, I'll pick one, you know, because um, because there's a lot here. Uh, you got you a fan club, man. Lithium Ionics got a pure fan. Okay, another question. This is from Jens. Um, another question I, I wonder is why um, why you do, why you do the Landera pan as a twenty year underground mine uh, when all the other competitors are are doing open mines with ten year lives? Just maybe a thought on on you know how you guys are thinking about that. Yeah, sure. Look, I think that the the we've got a, uh, an underground mine just the north of us, CBL, that's been operating for thirty years, extremely successfully. Um, and so you know, we look at the the opportunity here for for doing this underground. There's there's a real opportunity to keep the strip ratio extremely low, which we think as we move forward will actually benefit us um, significantly. Um, there is no strip ratio, obviously. And and so we, you know, ultimately we think we're going to be a little more selective in long term. It's it's a great strategy for moving things forward. And at the same time, we know we can get a very similar um, production profile of 200,000 tons of concentrate from this deposit, like you would see from Sigma's shoe show where they're doing open pit, you know, they're getting 250. Um, so it, it, I think as the years go on, we see a little less risk there. We don't have the upfront stripping costs. Yes, so we have some underground development costs, but we actually think it's going to help us 
uh, produce a consistent um, concentrate uh, that that we can be a little more selective and, and higher grade with, and we aren't going to be um, you know stripping so much waste and creating the same kind of waste piles. And, and so we think there's a ton uh, of advantages there. But I you know I also I think that for hard rock mining, open pit, underground, these are normal <laughs> paths forward. The reason we haven't seen a lot of underground mining in the lithium space is because the Aussies have been mining it and they're not going underground in, in, in Western Australia. They're going to make open pit if they can and, and get going as quickly as possible. And that's that's great. That's one way to do it. Um, but I think you're going to see more and more projects like ours uh, start to look at it from an underground perspective. These margins are perfect for underground projects. Yeah, I mean, the economics uh, are, are backing up that strategy, yeah. so that's good. Blake, uh, thank you so much. And if you get a chance to pop on YouTube, there's a bazillion questions. <laughs> I, I just I picked one out of the hat. Uh, there's uh, there's lots of pussy faces and thumbs up, and it's going crazy. No, no, it's, it's great. It's great. Uh, Blake, uh, thank you so much. Uh, that's lithium ionic. Uh, it's a lookalike, Sigma lookalike. Uh, th thank you very much, Blake. Appreciate the time. Oh, thank you, guys. Have a great day. Thank you. All right, guys, battery metals. You may think it's getting close to the end, but it's not. We okay, saved okay, the okay. best for last. Uh, so we're, we're going to keep chugging along. We're going we're gonna to try to get the next guest on, but guys, stay tuned. We'll be back in a sec. Oh, hey, welcome to Battle Battles 101. You know what? We do not let anything stop great guests from getting on the show. We got Dale Jin from his car. He's you know, road tripping across and uh, joining us uh, for Battle Battles 101. Uh, Dale, how are you? Lithium One, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. How are you guys? Very good. Very doing great, good. actually. Uh, I'll let Scott kick off. Yeah, so I know you're on right a road on. trip. You're building a company. We want to learn more about it. So tell us about Lithium One's resource packages and, and how were they put together originally? Yeah, originally, um, I mean, it's a, Lithium One's actually a combination of two companies that we just completed merging. So the original was Lithium One and uh, another one called Norris Lithium. And basically early on, um, a couple of years ago, Lithium One had been putting these packages together uh, it, it kind of needed uh, needed a reboot with with some new management, so we took it over. And Norris was actually an IPO that uh, we did last year, and uh, we optioned the same. Basically, a lot of our ground came from the same people that uh, optioned to Patriot uh, Metals. So we have the same uh, team exploring for us as as was working for them, and we. You know, had actually taken the ground from those same people. Great, that's that's really helpful. So, you have a you yourself have a thirty year history discovering assets and raising money for mining companies. What in particular drew you to Lithium One? Well, obviously, you know the trend, um, the whole battery metals thing, and um, the fact that we were able to get in early on a on a really an incredible land package up there. Uh, we've also put a very large land package together in in Ontario, as well near near the root discovery, um, and then also to the south of um, of us here in Quebec. We we've gone uh, you know into that Sierra Capanac Pontax area. Uh, we've got we've got a good land package in there as well. Oh, amazing. Okay, so. 
Now, I wanted to ask, you have multiple projects that you can delineate. Kind of for you, which is the highest priority and why, would you say? Well, our highest priority is uh, in the James Bay near uh, near Patriot. So our highway project, which is northeast of there, we've delineated a, a 20 kilometer long uh, elevated um, you know, indicator mineral trend. So uh, we've got basically what you'd call a, a pregnant pregnant uh, pegmatite that stretches for 20 kilometers um, and you know just you have to remember we only had two months of a field season this year because of the forest fires up there so we we were allowed in uh, into the ground at the end of September and um, at the moment you know winter is setting in so you know even in that two month time we we delineated uh, this 20 kilometer long trend on the highway and then there's also our smaller bus claim uh, that's the red uh, inside of, of Winsome uh, and we have another one called Taycan which is right inside of Patriot uh, battery metals and it's it's a smaller package but it's it's right on the trend as well and those three basically are our priorities at the moment. That's very helpful. You know, you mentioned Patriot. Can we drill into the Taycan project a little further? It's basically touching Patriot battery metals Corvette discovery. Do you have any indications that the mineralization from Corvette extends into Taycan, or is that that the hope? Well, we have at the moment we have visual um, confirmation that the you know the the big white coarse grain pegmatites go across that property. Uh, we're waiting for some uh, sampling. Uh, you know, confirmation, but certainly at, at first glance, it, it looks quite promising. That's great. Now, just to just to kind of end things off, could you walk us through the operational catalyst that you have coming up, the expected timelines and what the exploration strategy looks like? Just as people are following you guys, they say, okay, this this is a big catalyst. Things are on track, you know, just to help them along. Yeah. Well, first off, uh, in the new year, once winter has kind of settled in and uh, solidified the ground, uh, we intend to begin drilling at the highway project. So that'll be following up on the surface sampling that we were able to do this fall. So you basically, I mean, really what you're looking for here is a discovery. And uh, in this kind of, you know, setting, uh, you'd be looking for a large, uh, wide, you know, hard rock, uh, lithium deposit. So, um, I mean, really, that's that's what we are. We're an exploration company, and we're looking for the next big one up there. Hey, uh, Dale, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate the overview, and hopefully, we'll we'll we, we'll connect on a, a future conferences. We'll we'll uh, we, well, thank you, and thanks for joining us uh, from from uh, in in transit, in transit. Dale, join us in, in transit. transit. Yeah, th thank you very much. Uh, that's Dale from uh, CEO and director of uh, Lithium One. Thank you. Um, so, guys, right we're going to get guys. right into the next one. We got Benchmark Minerals, and then we got our keynote with Rob McEwen. Let's go. Welcome back to Grizzle Battery Metals one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, we are pleased to have Adam Webb from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. These guys are like the CIA for battery metals. They know what's going on, what's moving, where it's happening. Adam, how you doing, man? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you guys doing? Very good. We're Thank doing you. great. 
Now, Adam, let's jump right into it. I wanted to start things off for anyone who doesn't know Benchmark. Can you just talk about what your research focus area is at Benchmark? Yeah, so my particular area of focus in Benchmark is looking at some of the key raw materials, so specifically lithium, nickel, and cobalt. So myself and my team of analysts look at supply and demand forecasts for those three metals, as well as price forecasting. So that's that's my area of specializing within um, Benchmark. Got it. That's great. Now, so let's let's jump into some of the information you're seeing, what you're seeing on the ground. So as you look at future cathode chemistries, which battery metals stand to benefit the most based on the data you're seeing? Yeah, so I think the, the obvious one is is lithium. I mean, lithium is used in every single lithium-ion battery. I mean, the, clue, the clue's in the name, really. Um, so obviously, lithium's going to have the biggest demand growth um, of the three metals I look at. Uh, we're expecting around growth over the next 10 years for lithium demand to be four times higher um, in 10 years time. So that's really significant growth. And then for nickel and cobalt, they're not used in every single battery chemistry, only certain ones, but they're, they're quite widely used. So we'll see demand growth there as well, but not quite as, as large scale as lithium. So what we're expecting over the next 10 years for nickel and cobalt is for that demand to double in size. So although less than lithium, you know, that's still a, a sizable growth in demand for those two as well. Adam, j just a question on, on lithium itself. You know, when I look at Albemarle's like, you know, decks, like what they projected several years back, it always just, they just seem to like be overwhelmed with what they originally forecast. What What's the market missing? And like, are we going to continue to see that surprise to the upside or how are you guys baking it in? Um, I think... The market is pretty well aware of the the demand growth. I mean, it it could surprise to the upside or downside. Um, in our forecast, we have a three scenarios basically. We have a a high scenario which is based on uh, government policies and OEMs uh, targets for electric vehicles. We then have our base case scenario, which is you know what we think is realistic. Then we have a lower case scenario, which is basically constrained by uh, raw material supply. So there is those margins of error that there could be different scenarios that eventuate. But I think the market is well aware that EVs are growing significantly. Therefore, battery demand is growing significantly and that will drive lithium demand. Um, so I think the market is well aware of that. So, so Adam, have you seen, you know, how we see these forecasts from a few years ago and then they end up being way too low. Has, has the difference between what's actually happening and the forecast started to narrow where, you know, the market has woken up that there's, you know, there's a, there's a supply uh, deficit and, you know, they're starting to adjust. Yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult for me to comment on other people's forecasts, <laughs> um, but yes, as I say, the market's more aware of it now, but actually what's happened this year is um, I would say the demand projections uh, were higher at the start of the year compared to what we've seen now. And that is because uh, Chinese growth in the Chinese EV market has been slower than expected. Um, however, it is important to note there that although the the growth in the Chinese EV market has been slower than expected. It's still hitting record levels. So uh, EV sales in China in October 
for a record high. So there is that um, market commentary around slowing in China, but it's important to put it into context. So actually, I think the demand numbers this year were perhaps lower than, than expected at the start of the year because of that. Now, since we're talking about electric vehicles, I, I wanted that was one of my uh, key questions. Now, we know that electric vehicle demand is very important for forecasting all these battery metals, um, demand for them. How intertwined do you think demand is in the EV market with government subsidies? Can EV sales grow rapidly without them? Like, should we just be watching subsidies if they're falling off, get nervous? Or what do you guys think? Yeah, so, I mean, subsidies and tax credits um, directly on electric vehicles are clearly very important to this market at the moment. And what that will lead to is an acceleration of, of sales. But I think it's important to note that it's not just those subsidies and tax credits directly on electric cars. You've also got to consider um, fiscal policies such as um, internal combustion engine bans. So, for instance, in the, here in the UK, um, from 2035, no new internal combustion engine vehicles will be sold. That was going to be 2030, but the, the government, in all its wisdom, decided to push that back. Um, so that that's obviously going to have an impact, as well as things like tighter emission standards. Um, other policies that are going to encourage EV growth are things like um, improving EV charging infrastructure is hugely important. Um, but then also from the equipment manufacturer side of things, just increasing the the, the model of the, the number of model of electric cars just to give consumers choice. And then also just the production, increasing the production efficiencies um, through economies of scale will drop costs. And that's both from the battery side of things and also the the OEM side of things in terms of um, electric vehicles themselves. But I think the key point is, you know, subsidies right now, uh, kind of, it will vary depending on different countries, um, but they are required to make EVs comparable to internal combustion engine cars. But eventually, once that price parity point is reached, you know, it becomes an economic argument where if an EV is more economic for an individual's purchase compared to an internal combustion engine, then, you know, subsidies won't be needed any longer. Um, so that will come eventually, um, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Got it. That's helpful. Now, this may be the same answer you said with lithium before, but I wanted to ask which battery metal has the tightest supply and demand outlook over the next five years in, in Benchmark's view. And maybe I could just add that, add to that just in terms of like mine supply, you know, where, where you know, how you yep. guys are seeing that evolve across each one of those. Yeah. So in the metals I'm covering, so lithium, nickel and cobalt, um, we see all three of those actually in in surplus over the next few years. Now, the degree of surplus will vary. For instance, uh, cobalt will have a significantly bigger surplus versus lithium. Um, so that's over the next few years. But then once you get to 27, 28, that's when you see a, a deficit in all three emerging. So I would say out of those three, I would say lithium over that five-year period is generally going to be the tightest. And that's just because of that demand growth I mentioned earlier. Lithium demand is going to grow more than nickel and cobalt, and therefore 
think the market will be tighter there. But I think it's worth mentioning cobalt here because it will have the biggest surplus over the next couple of years. And that's because of increases on the supply side. You've had a big mine called Kasamfu come online in the DRC. There's also a lot of Indonesian cobalt coming from nickel mines, which has come online. So that will lead to a fairly big surplus over the next couple of years. But then actually that will switch around. In, and of those three metals, cobalt will be the first one to go into deficit in 2027. Um, and that's, I mean, that's cobalt. It's it's a smaller market than the other two, therefore it's more volatile. So, you know, changes in supply and demand can have a bigger impact on that market balance for cobalt. So Adam, uh, uh, whether in the near term or long term view, you brought up Indonesia and I just just thinking about how we think about environmental impact with respect to these these battery metals. And do we see that impacting pricing, say a premium for, uh, you know, uh, nickel with good ESG characteristics, low carbon, et cetera, say ditto for car, uh, um, copper. Just wanted to get your thoughts. Are we going to see that come into pricing in the near or, or medium to long term? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And it's something we're we're looking at. Actually, we've recently just launched a lithium ESG price assessment. Um, so it's too early stage to, to comment on what that's looking like. But um, it's something we're certainly aware of and something I could see developing in the future. Um, you know, the OEMs are wanting to show the end consumer that their you know supply chains are esg compliant um so yeah certainly something that could develop but right now we're, we're not seeing it as something as i say we're looking at that could develop in the future but um not not too sure at the moment interesting now adam i just want to end things off talk a little bit about battery chemistry market share any shifts you're seeing you know i just saw some news about uh, a new sodium ion battery there's some other technologies coming out there saying oh these might have improvements over lithium ion the current nmc batteries is this really like even if this stuff ends up working it just the commercialization path takes a long time how are you thinking about like the short term versus the long term on you know these battery chemistries that we see today really changing yeah, so it's not my <laughs> area of expertise, but I have been um, speaking to some of our battery experts on this area. Obviously, the news came out from Northvolt recently about their proposed sodium ion um, capacity, and there's been other similar announcements. So if we just, first of all, let's consider sodium ion. So the key really limiting factor there with that technology is actually the energy density of the battery. So Northvolt was announcing that their battery, their sodium ion battery would have an energy density of 160 uh, watt hours per kilogram. Now that is comparable to the kind of lower end of LFP cells. Um, so for kind of energy storage options or low range electric vehicles, that is potentially an option moving forward. But if you compare it to, say, an NTM in a, in a Tesla, you're talking about 300 for comparison. So there's still quite a long way behind that. And the other thing, as you mentioned uh, there, is that the, the thing to bear in mind with these new technologies that are being mentioned is the supply chains and the manufacturing scaling that up. It all takes time. So with the 
the sodium ion batteries, those supply chains that are not really in place at the moment for a widespread adoption. Um, one of the key uh, bottlenecks for the sodium ion batteries is the anode, which is composed of hard carbon, basically. And there is just not enough production capacity of that particular, of the anode material to scale up rapidly to match even the announcements from the, the battery manufacturers on sodium ion at the moment. So I think that the key thing to take into consideration, not just with sodium ion, but all of these new technologies you hear mentioned, um, it will take time. Um, even if it is a, a superior technology, it will take a long time to scale up to, to, to meet uh, or to compete with lithium ion, I think. And, and Adam, just on a final point, just a final question. So with respect to range, which is kind of what, you know, what is really kind of the crux of so much of the discussion around EVs, with respect to battery chemistries, if I'm right, nickel is the one that, that gives you that range, right? Like with respect to, right? Like, and that, and that there, there really isn't competition in that category right now. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, um, we've seen a proliferation of the LFP cells in China, for instance, but the key consideration with the nickel chemistries is they are higher energy density. Therefore, you get greater range. Um, and that is the right now, these other chemistries haven't been able to compete with that. So that, that's correct. Thank you so much, Adam. All right. That was Adam Webb. He's a product director, cathode of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Adam, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, everyone, don't go anywhere. We got a very special mining legend coming up next. Ooh, Robin McEwen, McEwen Mining. He's uh, the one and only. We got. We, we, he's uh, he's keynoting it, closing us off. Guys, stay tuned. He's coming up. We saved the best for last, guys. Oh. Man. Hey, 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 Mr. Robin Q, man, this is like a spaceship. We're, we caught you on a spaceship here. Here we go. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Hey, guys, this is a mining legend here. Rob McEwen, our keynote, closing the show. Uh, the Battery Metals 101. Rob, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Rob, Happy. you're a luminary of the mining world, having founded one of the world's great gold mining companies in Gold Corp. How much, how much more challenging is the current environment to bring a mine into production today versus say 30 years ago? Well, we're in a cyclical business. So there are times when capital's available and times there it isn't. And uh, we're going through a period right now where it's a little scarce. And a lot of the traditional suppliers have um, deserted the game. Uh, but I think uh, the industry needs to be looking in the unconventional areas. Um, in our copper subsidiary, we've been able to raise in the last um, 16 months about 400 million. So, uh, and that's for a private company and that's non-brokered. So I think, and if you look, um, I think the mining industry has to shift. Uh, the public opinion is against it. Um, and if we could address some of the concerns the general public has with mining and in a, in essence, try to Uberize it. And <laughs> I like that. 
So, um, you know, Uber decimated the taxi industry um, at, by creating a convenient, safe um, way of getting around, comfortable way of getting around. So mining, if we can look and maybe listen to some of the trends and the complaints, we might be able to access that $2.5 trillion invested in impact investing funds and ESG. So I think it's just really a shift to focus. That's a, that's a great point. And, and right now, you know, you, you got to get the investing world that's plowed so much money into the likes of Tesla and the, the valuations that are obviously high, um, you know, get a little bit of that cream and that could be go a long way uh, for, to invest across the supply chain of battery metals. If, if that's fair to say, right? You know, we're, we're yeah. it's like the money has gone heavily downstream, but it need it's forgotten the upstream aspect. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, now the the future of electrified electrified transportation obviously hinges on the continued supply of mined elements such as lithium, nickel, copper, and cobalt. We're looking at supply deficits for most of these metals under baseline EV adopting scenarios. Can the mining industry meet the challenge to produce the metals necessary? And specifically for copper, um, what do you believe will be the clearing price to incentivize uh, the needed production? Well, one, I don't think we're going to be able to make the timelines that the government mandates are. Um, just there's a, it takes quite a while to bring a copper mine on stream, at least 17 years from a discovery to production. And there's large deficits forecast in all of the metals that you just spoke of. Um, but I do think um, when you see copper moving beyond $4.50 a pound, you're going to have a lot more energy in the space. So for sure. So $4.50, guys. So that's, you know, that that's the trigger just to start to see some of this. So you know, as long as we're kind of like bobbling around here, you're not going to get that supply response. It's fair to say. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Rob. Now, with respect to, could you provide us an overview of the main operations of McEwen Mining? I'd be happy to do that. Um, I think you have a slide of a map of our operations. Yes, I do. Yeah. So uh, there, there's a, a broad map of uh, um, Zach. If you could throw up the map, there's like a North American map, and that may be one of the earlier images not one of the, 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 the full slides. And we're going to try to pull it all up, get it all. But basically yeah. we're, we're located through the Americas. Um, we have a gold mine in Northern Ontario, Canada. We have another one in Nevada. We have um, a gold silver uh, mine that we're bringing back into production in Mexico. And then down in Southern Argentina, we have a joint venture with uh, Hoss Shield Mining and it's high grade uh, silver and gold. And through a subsidiary, McEwen Copper, which is a private company at the moment, we have a very large copper deposit in northern Argentina on the border with Chile, and then in Nevada, um, a grassroots area in a gold copper zone of Nevada. Um, yeah. we, we've got a slide on the Fox mine. You, you want to talk about that, the Fox sure. mine production? Um, our precious metal operations were was really suffering over the last few years um, 
McEwen Mining shares dropped and was dragging along the floor. And that was because our operations were not delivering on guidance. And you can see we reached a low of 24,000 ounces at the Fox mine back in 2020. Um, this year we're projecting 45,000. Um, costs are coming down. And at another mine we have, the one we have in Nevada, I think you have a slide on it. Yeah. Um, and it's showing our daily gold production from the beginning of the year to uh, where we are today. And daily gold production has increased from a, a very low 50 ounces a day to uh, just under 500, well, just over 400 ounces a day. Um, and that was one of the big drags on our, uh, and concerns by investors about our precious metal production. So um, right now, if you were to look at the copper based on the investments that have been made um, since September of 22, um, there's $7.48 a share just based on the copper investment we have. And you're essentially getting the precious metal and a, a royalty portfolio we have for free. Right. And, and yeah, so that like you, and I don't think we have, we may have the NAV add up, but if you go to the, the McEwen, McEwen deck, you'll see that, that you're getting yeah. this rump basically for free outside of the, the copper. Now, um, you have operations in Argentina. Um, last week, we witnessed a historic election victory um, in, in the country with Javier Mele, uh, a win for free markets and sound money. McEwen Copper's Los Azules uh, copper deposit in Argentina, Argentina is a clear beneficiary. Rob, could you talk about the significance of this election victory, victory and what it means for mining in the region? Well, I think I'm going to go out and buy a chainsaw and help Malay cut up the bureaucracy. Uh, yes. <laughs> There you go. I love it. <laughs> we, right. we, we, all, we all should rev our chainsaws. <laughs> Come on down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what he's saying is needed in Argentina. Um, there is some concern if he's going to be able to execute on all of his uh, goals because he's a relatively new player in the political arena without a lot of broad-based party support um, but I'm I'm all in there for him um, it if he can address the importation delays if he can address the foreign exchange relate release some of the restrictions relax them um, it would be very good for Argentina so I think it's a great sign it's going in the right direction they've had 19 years of populist governments that have just uh, really weaken their currency and their economy. Uh, if they could change some of that, they'll get foreign investment in and propping up their currency and improving the lives for a large part of Argentina. For sure. Um, now, Los, Los Azules, yeah, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, is the eighth largest undeveloped copper project. That's quite significant in a world that is uh, clearly short and needing copper in the future. Uh, clearly a critical asset to meet future global demand. How significant is the project as a part of McEwen Mining? Also, could you provide an overview of the project economics? Okay, I think the next slide you have is showing our share performance of McEwen Mining. 
Yes. And just to give you a sense, this is uh, since the beginning of September 22 till now, we're up uh, better than 145%, outperforming the GDX, GDXJ, NASDAQ, Dow, Copper, and the Dow by a considerable margin, by at least 5x on the GDXJ. Um, so, and that's been driven largely by the transactions we've done funding McEwen Copper. Uh, back in the beginning of September of 22, we closed on an $82 million financing of which I put 40 million up personally. I led the financing. Um, Rio Tinto, the second largest mining company in the world, came in for 25 million then and some individuals. Then in late February, early March of this year, uh, Rio came back in again for 30 and Stellantis came in uh, for uh, quite a large number, billions, 30 billion pesos. Um, then we did a financing. We just closed last month, um, 10 for Rio and another um, 42 billion pesos from Stellantis. So you have two global players, the number two mining company in the world and the number four auto manufacturer in the world buying into this project. And that one's talked about the, uh, their belief in the size of the deposit and two, the value of copper going into the future. Um, so the coppers lifted McEwen mining significantly and the precious metals are now turning around nicely and expect to be the second driver of the McEwen mining share price. In Great. terms of, you wanted to know about the economics. Um, yeah. The next slide, I think we have the preliminary economic assessment. Oh, well here, um, what makes the project quite robust is this is um, a, uh, slide put together by Wood McKenzie, looking at undeveloped copper deposits around the world. And we are in the bottom uh, quartile of the cost curve for these undeveloped properties around the world. That low cost gives us very robust economics. And the next slide is just showing the highlights. So we're looking at a mine with a 20 year, 27 year life. Um, it's going to cost um, two and a half billion dollars to construct it. Uh, it'll pay back in just over three years. In the first five years, we'll be producing 400 million pounds of copper at a dollar seven a pound. And just to give you a sense of what I always like to look at non-gold properties through a gold lens. So there's 37.6 billion pounds of copper. And if I take the current exchange rate between the price of gold and the number of pounds of copper required to equal that, it's about 451 pounds of copper equals one ounce of gold in value. You would, so that 37.6 billion pounds of copper would be equal to a gold deposit of just under 70 million ounces, producing approximately over the life of the mine, just under 600,000 ounces at a cost 
of less than $600 an ounce, just to give you a sense of its size. And it's a 27-year mine life, but we're only mining just over a third of the deposit. So this is a very long life, low cost copper mine that will be producing a cathode copper, which is a green copper, because it doesn't have to go off to a smelter. Um, so it saves a lot of the carbon there. So um, no, it's a very exciting project and we've got some great partners. And uh, this year we're, we'll be doing about 50, 53,000 meters of drilling, which is about a almost 200,000 feet of drilling. And we're driving. Um, now, how important will the environmental foot will environmental footprint be in the mining industry? Uh, clearly, an advantage you have here with this mine. Do you believe that we'll see premiums for metals with a lower associated carbon footprints? Absolutely. Absolutely. People are going to pay for that. Um, and we're going to be producing, as I said earlier, a copper cathode. Um, if on a couple of the slides, one, we show our, our carbon signature. And well, this is just, you can see we're over on the left. Um, and it's, uh, again, we're at the low end of the scale. The dotted line over on the left is uh, our new PEA we'll be starting off producing one-tenth the carbon of a conventional comparable size copper mine to what we're doing. We elected to find a way to reduce the water consumption to less than a quarter of the conventional copper mine. Uh, our mine um, will be supplied with 100% renewable energy from YPF, which is one of Argentina's large power companies that has hydro, solar and wind and they've said they can give us a hundred percent power our fleet will be all electric with electric um, processing trolleys and we won't be produce have a tailings dam because it'll be a heat leach operation which uh, will conserve water emit less power um, carbon use less power and be how would i put it uh, a lot less capital. Fantastic. So, robust economics. Now we got a fancy when one of your slides we got a fancy picture here. This looks like very like this could be we a greenhouse. Like I, 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 I want to go there. I what, need a vacation. What is this? <laughs> is this are you, are you mining copper? Or are you feeding the world? What's going on, Rob? <laughs> Doing both. Uh, well, this, this is there. There's going to be a competition for labor in the mining industry because you. Not many people going through mining schools, schools of geology, and you have a lot of people retiring, at least in the Western world. And when I looked at um, what we wanted to do uh, when we we're building this, I asked an architect to come in two years ago and sit down with our mine engineers and planners. And I said, You're, I'd like you to help us redefine mining. We want to change the perception of mining in the world from what it is today where most people hate us to one where maybe they could start loving us and appreciating that what we take out of the ground sustains our modern society. But to attract people and to create something that is a jewel on the landscape rather than being considered as a blight, what you're looking at here 
would be the residence part of the, uh, the mine. It's um, incorporating a terraced inspiration from the Incas, so gardens, it'll be growing its own produce, dealing with its own waste, uh, wow. it'll be a translucent structure. Um, we want to make a very healthy, safe, comfortable place for people to work. And this uh, facility will have a hotel in it, so members of the family of the employees there can come up and visit. Also, we're going to uh, encourage tourists to come to the site. It'll have um, it, 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 I'm very, very excited about this project, and uh, it's very much about having a light touch on the environment. Um, yeah, then, this is uh, been, like, listen. This is going to be the uh, Four Seasons of mining. Yeah, this, yeah, this, this is quite nice. Impressive. Hey, listen, we, well, we, we may have to give up media. Yeah. We, we may have to make make that HQ. It's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, uh, Let's pick up our equipment and go, Tom. <laughs> uh, Rob, you know what? This is. It's been a fantastic chat. Now, just to wrap up, and I know we have a final, very vista slide, but. What are the key catalysts ahead for uh, for, for McEwen mining mining shareholders? Like, what what should what should investors look on the horizon? Well, I'm a big fan of exploration, so we're continuing to explore aggressively um, on a property in Timmins, up in northern Canada, also in uh, down in Nevada. Uh, we're our costs are coming down because our production is going up, so that will be a a welcome improvement in our our profile. We'll also uh, we've applied applied for an environmental permit for Los Azules, and that we should get mid this mid next year. Uh, we're driving towards a feasibility study. There will drill results coming out of there as well. So um, there's some high grade copper assays that we've been seeing. So all of those I think will uh, keep the story running. Great. Great. Hey, listen, we've got people in the chat saying my kind of vacation. They, they, they really <laughs> love that, that, uh, that rendering. We're, we're, yeah. Well, we know where we're going for a mind tour when, when it's time, Rob. It's, uh, I, I should say I, I have 100 or 220 million invested. That's my cost base. Um, I own 17% of McEwen mining. I own 13% of McEwen copper and I take a dollar a year. So there we go. Um, That's, there's some alignment there. Like Nicely done, right, Rob? You, you know, setting the example for the industry, right? Like money where money where your mouth is, and uh, and uh, taking and, it. And I, Rob, you're hearing the new age of investor, the the younger money in the market. You're hearing what they want, and it's not what has been done in the past. And so I, I definitely appreciate that, and I think that's going to end up being the model. Thank you. Um, uh, we really need to change the perception of mining, and I think what we're doing at Los Azulas can help ch shift that impression of mining, that this is an industry using a lot of technology today, and it's much more responsible with respect to the environment, and it's necessary ingredients for controlling climate change. 100 percent rob well you know uh rob i can't thank you enough for uh for uh closing out grizzle battery metals one-on-one -on -one. it's been quite the day we had uranium in the morning battery metals in the afternoon and we're doing gold tomorrow hard money uh rob can't thank you enough uh, that's rob McEwen of McEwen mining 
You talk about skin in the game. Someone mentioned that's on YouTube. Name another CEO with this much skin in the game. Over 220 million. His own cash in in McEwen Mining. This is uh, and this is quite the uh, quite the project uh, uh, that, uh, that that you're building. Uh, so we're, we're we're eagerly watching it as well, uh, Rob. And I look forward to having you join us in the future. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. All right, everyone. Ooh, wow, that that went fast. But I mean, battery metals, we hit it all, right? We hit all the different metals. We hit some pricing. We talked to the producers. We talked to the investors. Hopefully, if you guys, if you missed any pieces, watch it at 1.5 speed. You're going to get a lot of insights, baby. That's how we do. We're just as good at 1 as 1.5. No, no, I mean, you, 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 you can see Play it on repeat. If you do 1.5, watch it twice. You know, uh, but uh, you might miss the hack giveaway if you go 1.5. Oh, just gonna warn you. Listen, so speaking of hats, oh shoot, the hats too far. But uh, but we've got the nuclear hats, guys. It, please, uh, if you're in um, Twitter, give it the retweet. Let us know. Um, we're gonna be picking a bunch of people, and then you you guys can pick the hats. There's these are the these are the mining and uh, the hard money hats, and then we had the uranium hats this morning. Uh, please do that. And if you are, there's a ton of people out on YouTube. Guys, please, the thumbs up. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Let lets people know. Um, and then uh, finally, Scott, uh, tomorrow. What's going on tomorrow? Oh, tomorrow. So we got hard money. We're, we're the only conference that's mixing gold and Bitcoin. We got to bring them both together because they play in the same sandbox. So you, you can't talk about one without the other. It's going to be a great conversation from both sides. So I wouldn't miss it. That's going to kick off at 10 a.m. tomorrow Eastern. Yeah. And, and if you guys haven't heard... Warren Pies, he's going to be the uh, keynote to kick it off. Warren's the best, a good friend of the Grizzle. And you, 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 and you he's know, been nailing commodities this year, too, oh, like no one else. Arguably the best commodity strategist that, that's out there, full stop. So if you are into commodities, full stop, you need to hear Warren. Uh, and, and we got a full slate of great speakers through the day. Uh, Dolly Barton, uh, West Red Lake Gold. All these stocks are moving because gold's moving, Scott. And Bitcoin, obviously, having a stellar year as well. Yeah, so, both working. Listen, everything's working out. We we can't. Uh, we have to thank our wonderful partners uh, who made battery metals possible. Let's pull it up, Scott. So we got Hill Tower Resource Advisors. They're your source for the best information and advice on across commodities. And then Canada Nickel, the next great big nickel mine in the world nickel district in fact yeah you guys should you heard rob mention timmins ontario that's a big spot now and and uh you can't talk about timmins ontario without canada nickel they're going to make it a world-class uh, area for battery metals yeah exactly and, and nickel itself uh the undervalued commodity and then finally sprott uh we were fortunate enough to have john uh join us uh the ceo both in the morning uh and in the afternoon uh we talked uranium and now we're talking battery metals uh, they put a lot of thought and uh, insight into the different products they have. Uh, these aren't just, uh, you know, this is not me to uh, uh, ETFs. These are these are thoughtful ETFs that give you exposure to the direct the, the exposure you want, not the exposure you don't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, guys, thank you very much. Um, th thank you for the support. Please hit the hit the retweet comment, uh, and we'll make sure we're gonna pick like we we we're you know we're doing a big badge, so we'll send them. Yes, yeah, so you, you all got a good shot. Just uh, like, retweet, and and comment why you want the hat, and we'll we'll pick them out and we'll let you know. And then uh, remember, tune in tomorrow at 10 a.m. We got more swag to give away. Exactly, James Miller. Thank you. Grizzle is on another level. Uh, bomb emoji, bomb emoji, fire, fire, fire. You best believe it. It's dangerous to mix fire <laughs> with bombs, but we'll take it. Okay, we're out. <laughs>
All right, guys, see you tomorrow. 10 a.m. Take care.